Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 33 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. As always, I am Trevor Dame, and as always, you are Matt Feuerstein. Not you, the listener. You, the person that hasn't talked yet. Lucky listeners to not be me. Um, Aw. Yeah, we back. What up? What up? What up? What up? (laughs) Be back. Yeah, I uh, want to apologize for the bit of delay this time. That was my fault, just some um, life stuff. But yeah, we're here to finally start 2004. Uh, Matt, I don't know exactly what your background on this is, but I know for me, 2004 was the year where I became like a buy every Ring of Honor DVD like in order fat level fan. Yeah, uh, well, first of all, I want to say what up, what up is trademarked by the other podcast, Hollywood Handbook, but I was using it for my own benefit here. Um, I think, as, as I've said before, 2005 is really the year where that happened for me, but, uh, you know, 2004, there was a ton of buzz around ROH, both positive and negative. I had already watched some of the, you know, the main matches and stuff, um, and I 2004 was the first time I ever saw a full ROH event. I think the first beginning-to-end ROH event I ever watched was At Our Best, which we will be covering uh, four shows down the line. Um, but um, and, and then I went out of my way to see the Joe Punk matches. This is the year that has the Joe Punk matches. So, I mean, that's, that's I think, says enough right there. This is also the year that Samoa Joe became a name to people that weren't just following the indies. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, ROH is going to go through a lot of growing pains and changes this year, and um, yeah, it's fascinating. This show that we're going to review today is before all of that happens, so it's <laughs> sort of in this weird, like, almost like people forgot this time period existed, kind of like, where it's like, almost like, does this stuff even count, like the next couple shows, but um, there's some interesting stuff to talk about on it, though. Yeah, definitely. This is a, this is an interesting show, but like you said, in a way, I mean, I guess you know, life doesn't just run on a calendar. Even though we always like a lot of people separate two thousand four out as like, oh, this is when you know peak ROH started, or this is when, or in my case, is when I really started watching regularly. But these first few shows are a lot more like two thousand three Ring of Honor than what people think of when they think of maybe what the company's like by is like by the end of this year. So, I mean, it's still in transition, and obviously, you know, there's going to be something that happens in a few shows that really forces them to make dramatic changes. That That's why I always am interested in, like, would the company be as different if the big Rob Feinstein scandal doesn't happen? Yeah, I mean, if this didn't happen, you know, clearly Rob Feinstein would be uh, promoting Special K to this very day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Derange would be champ. We could dream. Special K reunion happening on an upcoming indie show, I believe. Is it during WrestleMania weekend? Because if, uh, if it is, I feel like I have to go. I didn't catch, but I, I will look that up in the future for you. Thank you. But something you can do when you're looking up things or when you're not looking up things is check out the fine podcast at the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. And, I mean, there are so many good ones. I, I frequently um, hype it up as I believe we have, like, the best crop of podcasts that cover old wrestling because i feel like we cover such a wide time span there's so many different federations that get covered that you'll probably find something you like at least one show if not multiple shows but uh sometimes what gets short shrift is the show that covers more recent wrestling which is this week in wrestling which 
first off, anyone that does a weekly show, I am just, my jaw drops. I don't know how that's even possible, Matt. But they cover indie wrestling, they cover foreign wrestling, and it's uh, this week. It covers weekly. It's up-to-date stuff. So, for anyone that's wondering, I feel like I don't want to mislead people. It's taken me 33 episodes to get here, but pro wrestling only, not just talk of old wrestling. You can get talk about new wrestling, too, and it's done very well. Yes, absolutely. And, um, yeah, as far as the weekly stuff, yeah, man, uh, I, don't, I don't know how y'all do it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we'd be better if we did it, but we don't. <laughs> oh, the show would be a lot worse. I'd be a lot more frenzied and, uh well, I don't know. I, I, I enjoy it the way we do it. Matt. I would not be able to handle watching a new ROH DVD every week. I, 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 it's just, I, I mean, I'm not even like that busy, although, you know, a little bit, I have, you know, and like that just where, who finds, how can you find the time? Yeah, like, I mean, not to get too behind the scenes here, but I think a key for podcasts like this, or at least for us is, making it so it's not like an obligation that it doesn't feel like homework, like we're doing it at the pace that's comfortable for us and not feeling like, oh, geez, I got to watch like another hour and a half of this by tomorrow because we got to do a podcast every Friday or whatever. But other people, I guess they're just way more motivated than us, maybe. Exactly. And, you know, if I was if I was watching an ROH DVD every week, where would I find time to um, get inundated with um, snarky political tweets on Twitter. <laughs> and that's very fun. And, oh, you're going to hit the mother load this week, I believe. <laughs> yeah. So one show we are not covering that technically kicked off the year is the JE Jersey All Pro Wrestling slash Ring of Honor did a co-promoted show called Collision Course. So for those of you that haven't been listening to every episode of Through the Years and How Dare You... Or also, welcome to the family. I guess I shouldn't be so mean to you for giving us a shot. But you sons of bitches. <laughs> how dare you? How dare you not love us from the beginning? But no, we. I think we mentioned this a few shows ago where uh, ML Major League Wrestling, MLW, was going to try and make inroads into Philly, and Ring of Honor did not take kindly to that. So they sent some talent to JAPW to do a co-promoted show. And the result was MLW then canceled their Philly show and went back to Florida and shortly thereafter went out of business. I don't believe because of that move, but certainly probably didn't help. And I thought we are not going to cover this show because it is not really an official what I would consider canon Ring of Honor show. In fact, uh, I looked up some research on and Mike Johnson said that with the exception of one match which was a incredible partner incredible partners match where DeVito teamed up with Trent Acid to defeat Johnny Cashmere and Loke other than that one match Gabe did not book any match on the show it has JAPW commentators it, it's really just a JAPW show that happens to have a few top ring of honor guys on it so I thought it's it's not really a canon show. It's it, it's kind of a niche thing, but I guess we should cover it a little bit. So I'll just go into the results. Um, the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels of EC Negro and Casey Blade defeated the Ring Crew Express in 846. Ruckus, who would join Ring of Honor years later, defeated Derek Wilde in 555. That incredible partners tag match, I already went over the result, that went 12-46. Now, here's an interesting one. There was a scramble match of Azrael, better known as Angel Dust, Jay Lethal, better known at this point in Ring of Honor as Hydro, and Insane Dragon, a.k.a. Izzy, defeated Special K of Deranged Dixie and Lit in 933. 
Now, I didn't watch that match, but uh, at least if, it, if it, the results keep to the... I wonder if they really did use, like, the JAPW naming conventions for this match, because that'd be interesting, because, yeah, it, that's one of those weird little things where in Special K in Ring of Honor, all these guys at this point had different names than they had in, uh, elsewhere on the indies in places like JAPW. Like, J Lethal was not even J Lethal yet in Ring of Honor. But uh, after that, there was... Matt, how about this one for an interesting one? Shane Douglas defeated Justin Credible in 11 minutes, 20 seconds in a match that apparently the crowd turned on and shit on Justin Credible. And how's this for a little um, preview of the future? Let me just see if I can find this quick thing uh, right here. Let me just find this. Uh, fans were all over Shane Douglas doing the don't come back stuff at him during his match with Justin Credible, which saw a botched belly-to-belly finisher. And then if I uh, can keep looking, that was Dave Meltzer. Let me find the other bit of it from Mike Johnson. He wrote, uh, Douglas, oh, let me just see here. There were plans at one point for Shane Douglas to tease throwing down the Ring of Honor belt and then instead endorse Ring of Honor champion Samoa Joe after his match with Balls Mahoney. But they were dropped after the poor fan response to Douglas when he worked just incredible earlier in the night. So it's kind of funny that like, they had plans for Shane Douglas to give like the big uh, put over to Ring of Honor, and then it did it didn't go well. And then Ring of Honor would years later be like, you know what? That's a good idea that needs to be tried again, and it also didn't go well. That happened at that actually happened at the first ROH show I ever went to with the the Shane Douglas uh, ending up endorsing ROH after the crowd shit on him really badly. Um, yeah, it's it's funny how to quote uh, Daniel Bryan how fickle indie wrestling fans are. Like just incredible, right? They loved him. They were so excited for anything ECW for like most of 2003. Then they're already shitting on Shane Douglas. I don't know if it's because he left to go to WCW or just because they didn't like him to begin with. I very fickle fans. And yeah, it is funny. I mean, this is ECW of this era. I've watched my fair share, but it's not my specialty. So probably someone that followed it more could have a, their finger better on the pulse than us about the fans' relationship to him. But yeah, it is weird because when we've been watching early Ring of Honor, most times when early era ECW guy came to Ring of Honor, they got received pretty well. Maybe just the JAPW audience is a little bit different, a little bit rowdier. I, I, I actually don't know that for sure. I'm just uh, guessing here. Maybe. And uh, going to the second half of the Collision Course card, April Hunter defeated Sumi Sakai in 8.58. Samoa Joe defended the Ring of Honor world title against Balls Mahoney in 16 minutes, 21 seconds. I did not watch anything on this show except this one match this morning because I just had to know what it was like. And it was surprisingly not bad. Like, it's nothing you need to go out of your way to see. But Balls Mahoney, like, lost a lot of weight looked like around this time and he really just basically worked a total Samoa Joe style match which was and he, and he hung in there with him so that was pretty impressive uh there was a JAPW heavyweight title match where Dan Moth defeated Slick Wagner Brown by DQ in 19 minutes 30 seconds and then the main event was a four corner survival match Christopher Daniels defeated AJ Styles, CM Punk, and John Walters when he uh, pinned AJ Styles, I believe. That went 25 minutes. Can't miss superstar John Walters making his way into the main event with some elite people there. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that just like a random four-corner Ring of Honor match got to main event over the JAPW heavyweight title match. Yeah. 
And so apparently that show, that was, I believe, the night before the show we're reviewing today, which is the battle lines are drawn, it was in Woodbridge, New Jersey, and it drew apparently around 500 fans. So that's that. But I thought I'd also go into the MLW show that was supposed to be in Philly and then ended up going back to Florida. There was just a couple interesting little Ring of Honor adjacent notes to that one. The first thing was... Um, they ran on this show, they had a Brian Danielson versus Teddy Hart match. And listen to this in the Danielson versus Hart match, Danielson tore Teddy Hart's pants off and Teddy wrestled in his boxers. They did a takeoff on the ROH deal where Hart started doing moonsaults after beating Danielson. Danielson told him to stop and he wouldn't. And they started fighting with Danielson pounding on him. And that was also the same MLW show that had the, uh, the homicide versus low key match where they kind of stole ring of honor's lunch where ring of honor couldn't put that match together because low key didn't want to lose to homicide. And yet MLW was then able to do that where they booked the same match and homicide beat low key. So kind of interesting to think that MLW at this time was basically running like top ring of honor angles and moments and feuds in some things that even ring of honor was not getting able to book at this point. MLW won the war. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, in the long run, well, I mean, Ray Vaughn is doing better than MLW right now, but... I mean, His- the history is not over. <laughs> we'll be back in 10 years and it'll be like, finally, MLW's on top. Yes. That'll be when we do our MLW podcast. Uh, <laughs> major League Memories. I don't know. That, I like I it. Could do, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> of course, people, um, might, people might think it's about baseball, but... Mm. Oh, yeah, exactly. Or... Uh, North American soccer, but yes. the, the only other little note is Colt Cabana will be wrestling on the show we are watching tonight, but they reference some shoulder problems he has, and that was apparently a real thing because there's a little news bit that says Colt Cabana will be out of action the next two months, including missing the Ring of Honor's second anniversary show to heal shoulder problems, which are torn AC joints in both shoulders that have been bothering him for a few months, so... Yeah, they actually referenced that on the show, and he even gets his shoulders worked on, but apparently that was legitimate, and it's weird, like, I can't remember Colt Cabana getting, like, a serious injury too often in his career, I might have missed something, so it's interesting to think that this early in his career, he had, like, double shoulder surgery, or at least double shoulder problems, I don't know what he did to recoup from it, but, so... And that brings us to tonight's show, the first proper Ring of Honor show of 2004. The battle lines are drawn, took place January 10th, 2004, at the Robert Center in Wilmington, Ohio, in front of a reported crowd of around 500 fans. Now, before we get into the show, I I think something we should do to set up this show is, I guess, because we always review the show as we watch it, I mean, as we do the podcast and as we watch it too, but... I was thinking, we should keep in mind, does it live up to what Ring of Honor hyped this as? Because Ring of Honor hyped this up all over the place afterwards as one of the best shows Ring of Honor ever did. And, uh, in fact, they were so excited by the show that when they were doing a bus trip to the New York area or from the New York area to... uh, the second anniversary show, one of the things they advertised was you were going to get to watch the um, unedited footage from the unreleased show, The Battle Lines Are Drawn, 
and they went as far on the website to say that this was one of the best shows in Ring of Honor history, and we will even go as far so far as to proclaim it the first show of the year candidate in 2004, which I'll add, that's a pretty bold claim when it's a show that happened 10 days into the year, and Ring of Honor hadn't run a show in the year before that. So. I, I didn't realize that. So I was actually approaching the show like from the reputation of it after the fact, which was different than what you're saying. <laughs> In fact, like I, I have this quote, I think, later in the show, but I believe um, multiple sources within Ring of Honor were telling Mike Johnson after the show that the main event was possibly the best match in company history. Wow. So just keep that in mind when we review the main event tonight, people. Okay, but I'm going to add some other context later, too, because that is yeah. one thing to keep in mind, but there's more to the story, but yes. And there is one other big story that happened kind of before the show, or I guess technically during the show, and we'll go to the Wrestling Observer for this one. Jim Cornette no-showed the January 10th Ring of Honor show in Wilmington, Ohio. He had assumed the show was in Dayton. Apparently, Rob Feinstein mistakenly told him it was in the same building they played last time, and nobody realized that or called him to let him know different. Cornette drove to Dayton to the building they ran the last time they were in the area and saw that nobody was there and thought that he was being ribbed. He drove back to his hotel in Dayton and ate a pizza and watched TV, thinking he was ribbing them back. Dean Roll, a.k.a. Shark Boy, did talk to him via cell phone to give him directions to the arena, which was about 45 minutes away, but he never came. Feinstein and Gabe Sapolsky were upset and never realized they never told him the right venue. Les Thatcher, who is Cornette's longtime friend and was there, wanted to call him, he spoke with him briefly earlier, to talk him into coming when they realized he wasn't coming, but Thatcher didn't know Jim Cornette's girlfriend's cell phone number. At the show, it was said it was due to car trouble that Jim Cornette did not show up. Everything has apparently been worked out, and Cornette will be doing all the shows he's been advertised on. Ring of Honor even publicly apologized on its website for any miscommunication. Both of Cornette's wrestlers, Seth Skyfire and Mike Mondo, made the show, even though they at first thought it was in Dayton, but went on the internet and got directions. So, so yeah, so the... Um the an honorable mention podcast, you know, did this did this show also reviewed it, and their uh, their take on the events are a little bit less um, sympathetic to Cornette than Meltzer's uh, uh, recap that you just read. I, I mean, I, I'm inclined. This does seem make sense, especially considering, like, I think we joked a couple shows ago where um, Gabe said something to the effect of. Uh, Jim Cornette does not believe in computers, so I can understand Jim Cornette not, you know, getting the wrong directions, and unlike the OVW wrestlers, not just going, okay, I'll go on Google and, like, look up the Ring of Honor website and realize what went wrong. And in 2004, they probably printed out something from MapQuest and got them to the right place. Exactly. The only thing I would say, I guess, is a little bad is the idea that it sounds like there was an opportunity for him to still make the show, and he right. just got pissed off and said, "Fuck it." Right. It wasn't far away. Like that. That was the thing. Like it was. It was just another like forty-five minutes away. Yeah. So I mean, and, and again, this is, that's another one of these weird stories that will never happen now, even though this was only fifteen years ago. Because the idea nowadays that like no one could contact Jim Cornette because like Les Thatcher couldn't find Cornette's girlfriend's cell phone number, like all the stars of today. I have to imagine you're going to be able to get a hold of them. It's kind of funny, like, but back then you still could just kind of, if you were, you know, from the older generation and not technologically savvy, 
you could just be unreachable in situations like this, which again, I don't think will ever happen nowadays. Yeah, I remember when I, so 2000, I got my first cell phone when I was 19 in 2003, which I guess is late for some people. Um, and I remember thinking, like, I didn't want a cell phone. I, I remember I always said, like, um, like, what am I, a doctor? I need to be on call all the time. <laughs> and then um, my parents were like, no, you're driving back and forth to college, so you need to have a cell phone. So that's when I got one, and of course, I'm addicted to my phone now. But, um, yeah, so, but I can, you know, in 2004, it wasn't weird at all for people to not have cell phones. But I guess it must have been more than that because, again, like Shark Boy, which, again, Shark Boy not on the show, so maybe he was just working for the local promotioner behind the scene. But, uh, you know, apparently he got in contact with Cornette, but for whatever reason, whoever did get in contact with Cornette could not convince him to make the extra 45-minute drive. And he did not appear. So he would be on the next show, so he wouldn't know show that one. that Everything would be worked out. And one more thing before we get into the show proper – uh, a listener of the show who has contributed notes before, Michael Laney was here at the show, and he has given us some really interesting notes, which we will use throughout the show, but he has some more general ones that I'm going to tell you about right now. And just before I get into them, I'll this is your usual reminder that if you have anything to add to one of our upcoming shows, if you were there and saw something that we wouldn't see on the home release or anything like that, you know, we'd love to hear from you. Send it at uh, through the years at gmail.com. You can write us an email. And the only thing we ever ask of you is if you do not want us to credit your name on the air, if you want to be anonymous, just let us know because we like to give credit. But if you tell us not to, then we'll make sure you can be completely anonymous. Or if you just want to tell us something and go, you know what, don't tell anyone on the air about this because it's going to implicate me in something. Unless it's a murder. If it's a murder, I think we're going to feel like we have to tell the cops if you want to confess to a murder but if you want to confess to a murder through the years at gmail.com so here are the notes um he michael laney wrote the robert center where this event was held is a convention center adjoining a hotel and a max and irma's restaurant roh had roughly half the building this night as the other half was cordoned off for a gun show Hmm. We stayed in the hotel that night, which led to some encounters with the wrestlers, such as Matt Stryker introducing himself to us as the promoter of the show, um, seeing Tony DeVito at the front desk, asking if they had any disposable razors as he forgot his. After they pulled out the box of all the travel accessories, he talked them into giving him pretty much one of everything, toothpaste, toothbrush, etc., Michael goes on to say, I also ran into the Carnage crew, Alex Shelley, and Matt Stryker at the hotel pool. Alex Shelley was carrying around a toy cruiserweight title belt. Um, BJ Whitmer's mom was hanging around the hotel lobby after the show, bragging about her son and telling people that she makes his tights. And then maybe my, uh, this is a bit of a sad anecdote, at Max and Irma's restaurant, Cody Hawk and his girlfriend were seated at a table next to us. Nigel McGinnis came in at some point to talk to Cody Hawk, and soon after, the Briscoes, Jimmy Jacobs, Dan Moff, Gabe, and Rob came in to be seated. The Briscoes were one of my absolute favorites at this time, so I worked up the courage to talk to them and ask them to sign my Ring of Honor program. I talked to the Briscoes, and only the Briscoes, which in retrospect was very weird on my part. Nigel and Cody turned to my mom while I was getting the autographs and asked her, what about us? We've been here the whole time. So, poor Nigel, as always. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. <laughs> just Nigel. I just imagine him sitting here going, what the heck? Like, Well, I mean, in um, Lainey's defense, the Briscoes were, you know, stars in ROH, and um, Nigel McGinnis and Cody Hogg weren't at the time. 
Yeah. Although if this was after the show, I would have been like, Nigel, are you okay? Like, yes, I <laughs> that's, that, definitely. That's true. Also, I, I don't. I wonder if like being there live, you didn't realize what had happened the way you could with the close-up on the DVD. We'll get to it. Yeah, yes. And finally, uh, there, again, there's a few more uh, Michael Laney tidbits we'll sprinkle throughout the show, but or at least a couple. But there were also apparently two live segments cut from the show, and well, he gets into one here where he writes, um, at some point before intermission, there was an in-ring Second City Saints promo. I don't remember much of note from the promo itself. I believe the intent was to give the crowd a recap of what happened at Final Battle since it was not yet released. The most recent DVD releases were Revenge on the Prophecy, yes, a year late, and Bitter Friends, Stiffer Enemies. This in-ring promo would end up getting hijacked by the two obnoxious college guys who kept yelling at Tracy Brooks that she was fat. The crowd got fed up with the two guys and started chanting, shut the fuck up at them. But the two guys joined in on the chant, thinking it was directed at the punk <laughs> promo. Punk then berated the guys for being such dumbasses that they didn't realize the crowd was talking about them. So, yeah, that's a funny anecdote. And also, that's pretty crazy to think that Revenge on the Prophecy was, like, delayed almost a year. That's so bizarre. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I think... So, my, my take on that, those were the latest DVD releases. And ROH shows were first released on VHS. Oh, you're right. Yeah, that could have been it. Too. So, they were probably released... Um, you know, in a relatively more reasonable time on VHS, and they just took a long time to get them converted to DVD. That is my take on that particular um, anecdote. Um, and even up through like two th- early 2006, um, they were still releasing the VHSs first. Um, so that makes yeah. sense. I, I, yeah, as, it does. As far as the promo, um, I, I figured there must have been some sort of live promo that turned the crowd against the Second City Saints because they were very, very pro. They were a very pro prophecy crowd, even though there was really like in the early part of the storyline, there wasn't really a clear delineation between who was really the heel and who was the face. But the crowd totally took the prophecy as the faces here. Um, and the other thing is. Um, about those stuff being cut from the DVD. This was clearly a show that was super packed because they cut out almost, except for the main event, they cut out pretty much every single entrance. It um, was still just shy of three hours. So yeah, yeah. they had to cut on in the case of this show. Yes. And it's also an interesting kind of relic of the times in the sense of, you know, Ring of Honor was trying to be kind of a storyline-based episodic product, but this was before even the video newswires and before today's era of instant, like, you could watch indie shows live or a day or two later on demand. So you would literally have to tell fans, like, explain storylines that had not yet made it to DVD, because otherwise, unless they were really following your website and live reports closely, they might not even understand what was going on. Exactly. Like, you could miss out, like, oh, what's B.J. B. Whitmer? The last time he was in Ohio, he was a babyface wrestling Samoa Joe for the title. What's he doing as part of the prophecy now? You well, know? now he's, he's a babyface as part of the prophecy. Because <laughs> <laughs> he did the most noble thing you can do in Ring of Honor, which is brutally attack a woman. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, we start the show proper. The first thing we see is is a backstage promo from Christopher Daniels and the rest of the prophecy. Daniels starts cutting his promo. A phone rings fairly early on, but the promo keeps going anyway because apparently Ring of Honor was allergic to doing take twos. Uh, Daniels talks about the prophecy already ended one stable, which was Steve Carino's group. He tells Samoa Joe that one day he'll win the Ring of Honor title. 
And uh, then Daniels moves on to the Second City Saints. He says, tonight the war begins. They're going to decimate them, just like the group. And that's it's just a very basic kind of establishing what's going on promo with B.J. Whitmer and Dan Moff kind of arguing in the background during it to kind of keep that angle of, oh, they have tension going. Not much more to this, I don't think. Yeah, Whitmer's still not good on the mic. <laughs> Um, does he ever get great? Definitely never gets great. I mean, maybe in like recent years, I haven't heard his like late era ROH promos, but in the era that I watched, he was not never great, but oh, it definitely got better. Yeah. Um, next we cut to an in-ring pre-show promo as Samoa introduce Samoa Joe introduces us to the second ever episode of Samoa Joe's ring, complete with the weirdest font choice ever for the name of the segment. It liked was like a hair's breadth away from wingdings. I don't know why they picked it. Whenever Ring of Honor picks fonts for things, it's always as if they do it at random. They're always different. They're always ill-suited. Um, Joe demonstrates the abdominal stretch on a student, but then Brian Danielson, wearing a 1980s Batman t-shirt, interrupts and says there's a much more effective way to do the hold, and demonstrates it on a young Cheech of uh, Cheech and Cloudy fame. This is the first time we see him, I think. And uh, Joe argues that Danielson's way makes it harder to transition into a headlock takedown, but then Danielson shows that you can still do it just in a different way. Joe says there's a better way to do that, too. And they just go back and forth, and they're basically having, like, a wrestling nerd off. I thought this was pretty funny. I thought this was pretty funny, actually. Yeah, I actually dug that, too. Because every time they were demonstrating something, their victims would, like, scream a lot more. So they were just, like, being like, oh, yeah, no, you do it like this. But, like, meanwhile, these guys are getting being tortured, and they don't even think about it. I thought that was pretty funny. And it's kind of a callback to some of the earliest shows where they would have Danielson, like, put guys, like, Quiet Storm in submissions or whatever. Exactly. And, and, and stretch them and be like, no, this is how you do it. He doesn't realize, like, how badly he's hurting them. And now, now he has someone to do it with. Isn't that sweet? And, uh... Joe and Danielson then have an intense face-to-face. Joe says he's hoping to win the tag titles with Danielson tonight. And Danielson, you know, he wants to as well. But Brian says that after after that, he's going for Joe's world title. Joe ends by asking for a handshake. And Brian walks away. He says he won't shake Joe's hand until they have a world title match. So, spoilers, I guess Danielson won't be shaking Joe's hand for quite a few months. Um, Also, Danielson did not look like the best promo of the year here. No, no, I was go- I'm so glad you agreed because I wrote my notes. I said here, I've always said Danielson was underrated from a charisma standpoint early in his career, but his blank stare as Joe talked was a bit wooden here. And I might have been being gentle there. He definitely looked like when he had to just kind of sell intensity, like it was Samoa Joe versus a cardboard cutout of Brian Danielson, it seemed like. Yeah, I mean, like when he actually did the, the stuff with the, um, like... When he when he did the stuff with the um, uh, the like holds and stuff like that, it was actually pretty good. But when he was just staring face to face with Samoa Joe and responding to him, yeah, not he was not a good actor. <laughs> and, but you know now he I, is. Now he's a good actor. Yeah, that's a good reminder. I mean, for people that don't know or are listening to this years in the future, Brian Danielson just won a, a week or two ago in the Wrestling Observer Awards, which are fan voted or subscriber voted. He won best promo in all of wrestling and MMA. So, like, that was something, you know, in this era, some fans that weren't really following him closely wrote him off as, you know, like, quote unquote, vanilla midget. And like I said, I think he was always underrated in terms of his charisma, but definitely his promos 
got way, way, way leaps and bounds better you know, oh, in 15 years. Even five years ago when he was like the hottest star in the business, I don't think anyone would have said he was like the best promo in the business. So it's 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 a shocker that it got to this point, I, even for me, who has always been, you know, a big, you know, a huge fan of his. And, and I guess it's also like for any wrestlers or promoters out there that listen, like, don't give up on on stuff like that. Just because someone says you're not a good promo guy, you know, if you have a long career... You can get there sometimes, you know. You can make huge strides, maybe, if you just keep practicing. I mean, he he certainly made progress, I think, probably throughout the 15 years. But like you said, he made a big jump recently with the new gimmick. Right. I mean, I think probably it helps to have a gimmick that, you know, kind of you fashion yourself and really feel, you know, and, 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 and kind of innately understand what the the motivation of the character is and you know in some you know like the whole yourself with the volume turned up sort of situation i'm sure that helps a lot so that brings us to the first match of the show which was not it was considered a pure rules preview but really the only pure title rule that was in this match that made it different from a regular match was it was a three rope break match each wrestler only could do an up up to three rope breaks, and then rope breaks wouldn't count for them. And that match was Matt Stryker defeating Alex Shelley by submission in 14 minutes, 29 seconds, when he made Shelley tap out to the striker lock. Matt, what did you think about this as an opener? Well, first of all, clearly, after winning the um, the Field of Honor tournament on the very last show, Matt Stryker's career has skyrocketed. <laughs> to the opener. <laughs> to the opener against some against the guy who was not pushed at all in ROH um, and barely has been in it. Um, but, so basically, his position is exactly what it was before, if not lower. Because um, yeah, Gabe said on the last show, or he said on a few shows, that you know whoever wins this is going to sky, you know, the Field of Honor is going to skyrocket up the card. So you would think that he would put him somewhere else on the card on the very next show, just to kind of make him his words somewhat true. But opening match. Yep. Um, first of all, new announcer. Uh, oh yeah, that was uh, what was it, Chris? Chris um, Nelson. Chris Nelson, who was an NWA, who was a former NWA tag team champion. Um, I forget who his partner was uh, during this time in the nineties, but um, uh, yeah. So it's Chris Lovey and Chris Nelson. So it's a double Chris kind of situation. Um, I would say Chris Nelson. You know, he there were some cringe moments, but overall, he didn't stand out much, positively or negatively. Um, what did you think? I, I, I think the same. Like. In a way, I feel bad gritting him because he only does two shows. He does this show and the next show, which is The Last Stand. So I think anytime you um, you do a product like the first couple times, even if you do a bunch of research, you're probably not going to be as good as you are, go- are going to be if you do a bunch of shows. Like Kevin Kelly has gotten way better at announcing New Japan over you know the years he's been doing it. But at the same time, yeah, I agree with you. Like For a guy doing his first show... There was a couple goofy things, but he mostly was just a very middle-of-the-road, perfectly tolerable announcer. We, we've seen much worse. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yes. We've seen much worse in the course of this podcast. I would agree with that very much. He was he was easy to ignore, which in the context of ROH announcing is often a good thing. <laughs> um, uh, as far as the match, um, I thought Shelley looked really good. Um, yeah, I think Shelley has always looked really good in a lot of these matches. I think Stryker seemed motivated against, you know, a dynamic new guy. Um, you know, not that kind of the same old stuff. Um, and I thought, you know, 
besides that, it wasn't a particularly dynamic match, but it was well worked. You know, they both do good submissions. The rope break stuff. I wish that they had had the announcer announce the rope breaks like he would end up doing uh, as the pure division went forward. But in this match, you know, I don't know how much the crowd really followed it. I guess, you know, they seemed like they weren't completely taken out of it. Um, but, you know, they would do like, you know, submissions near the ropes to get the guy to use the rope break. That would happen. Um, you know, Stryker obviously worked on Shelly's leg, um, which makes a lot of sense, uh, given his submission. Um, the one thing that uh, that I thought was funny was Shelly does this like choke submission over the top rope, like, you know, like using the ropes. And it mm-hmm. counted as a rope break against Stryker. And Gabe on commentary was like, well, that's kind of controversial. But it was just like <laughs> clearly total bullshit. It wasn't like kind of controversial. Like this, that would, that, that's really messed up that you would count that against the guy who had the move dunked him in the ropes. I don't know. Um, there was a cool spot where Shelly was standing on the top rope and his knee buckled because he had been worked on and he ended up in a tree of woe. I thought that was just done perfectly by Shelly. And then, uh, and then after that, a striker did the striker lock near the rope, so Shelly used his final rope break, and then he did the striker lock immediately again, and of course Shelly was at a rope break, so he had to tap out, and uh, it was well executed, um, but it, it mostly existed to show off the rules, and I thought it did a fine job of that. Solid opener is how I would describe it. Yeah, I, I thought this was above, this was nothing special, but it was, a, a, I would say, above average as a wrestling match, like... I think you could tell Matt Stryker probably enjoyed getting to wrestle someone that liked going to the mat and trading holds. I mean, Alex Shelley's a pretty versatile wrestler, but certainly he's if you want to go just trade submissions, he's willing to do that. So I think Stryker was probably pretty happy that some, he was getting to work someone that was right in his wheelhouse again. Um, most of the first half of the match is just them trading holds at a good clip. And then, yeah, the second half of the match... Um, Striker starts focusing on the leg. I agree with you that that's Shelly's spot where he sells the uh, the leg injury. I thought that was really cool. It was so such an interesting spot that for a brief half second, I was like, is that a botch? And then I remembered, oh, no, he was selling his leg because, you know, it had been worked on. Because you usually don't expect when a guy climbs to the top rope, and he had his back to the ring, so he was going to do, like, a moonsault. To all of a sudden see that guy on his own drop into a tree of woe, but then you realize, oh, it's because his knee gave, gave out. And, you know, Alex Shelley was always um, good about those little bits of in- innovation. Like, e- even in this match, he breaks out little neat things like a straight jacket neck breaker that he floats over into, like, a straight jacket submission. Moodalock almost. Yeah, yeah. Like, and, like hangman's neck breaker, kind of. Like, I don't know what it, what it is. I'm making up stuff. Uh, it is probably a little bit telling, even though I thought Matt Stryker did fine here. It's probably a little telling that Alex Shelley, who's you know in a, very young at this point and barely in the company, outshined the guy that's supposed to be in the middle of a push. Like that's probably not a great sign for Matt Stryker's 2004. It's as if we've no, have seen these shows before. I can be that clairvoyant. But, <laughs> um, um, and, and and yeah. This match was mostly just to teach those fans the three rope break rule. Just the idea of you use up your rope breaks, then if you get to the ropes again, you're out of luck. And the fans, they did count a little bit to the rope breaks, and I think there was a faint we want rope breaks chant early in the match. I think they were just being kind of snarky. But 
this this match would start, I believe, a weird pattern for the show, where Gabe keeps trying throughout the show to clarify what pure wrestling means, because the pure wrestling title is coming two shows from now, so everything's about ramping up towards that. And every time throughout the show I'm going to point out where he tries to clarify it, it gets more confusing. And it starts with this. Let me see if I can find Gabe's quote. Okay, he says, During this match, Pure wrestling doesn't just mean tentacle wrestling. It doesn't just mean working an arm or working a leg. Pure wrestling means competition in its purest, at its purest. That is what pure wrestling is all about. Great athletic matches. Isn't that that what ROH is supposed to be? (laughs) (laughs) He, He goes on to say, it encompasses all styles of wrestling. It's just about having the most competitive athletic matches going today. By the time he was done saying this... I was way more confused at what pure wrestling was. Because if you said going in, oh, it's going to be like a technical division for the mm-hmm. Matt Strikers and Chad Colliers of the world. And then Gabe seems throughout the show to push against that, being like, well, pure wrestling can be anything. Which makes me wonder, like, what is it? That, like, like <laughs> By the end of the show, you get the impression that 70% of all Ring of Honor matches are already pure wrestling matches. Right, well, the mission statement of the pure wrestling division, according to this show, is the same thing as the mission statement of Ring of Honor itself. Right? Like, am I am I crazy? Like, it, It's like someone saying, we're going to sell a new type of ice cream, and it's going to be van- it's going to be made of cream and sugar, it's going to be smooth and delicious, and it's going to have some chocolate in it, and you're going to be like, well, that's chocolate ice cream. And you're going to be like, yes, we sell that too. Well, that makes this difference. Like, well, it's not really different. It's, we're still, it's, it's, it's pure chocolate ice cream. It's like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, why is this separate? You, you, you are, like, destroying your own justifications for why this should exist. It's like if WWE created, like, the Raw division, and they're like, and the Raw division, you know, it's, it's you know, sports entertainment, and it has athletic stars, and they have matches, and sometimes they're in elimination chambers, and they have Royal Rumbles, and they're TLC matches, and then there's WrestleMania, and they, they wrestle in SummerSlam, and it's like, isn't that just the WWE? And it's like, yeah, but this is, like, the Raw's version of all of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like Gabe, for some reason, I'd love to pick Gabe's mind on this. Like, why... It, it seemed like on this show, he got scared of the idea that the pure wrestling title would be seen as just, like, a title for technical wrestling. Because everything he says on the show about that seems to push back against that. Like, later on, we'll go on. He'll, he'll have, like, AJ Styles and Homicide will be wrestling just a typical Ring of Honor match. And he'll be like, this is a great example of pure wrestling. Like, he just... he wa- He wants you to know... That pure wrestling won't just be like Chad Collier wrestling Tom Carter or something. He, he for some reason he's scared of you thinking that. It seems like. But it's not like there was ever a pure title match that was like a bloody brawl, you know? It, yeah, exactly. So, but that brings us to something that was maybe not a brawl, but definitely bloody. I guess. I guess. I guess. Looking back, um, the match that we're going to compare this to is technically a pure title match and was kind <laughs> of a bloody brawl. But anyway, go on. This was an HWA heavyweight title match. Nigel McGuinness successfully defended, coming in as the champ. He defeated Cody Hawk in eight minutes, six seconds, with a roll-up out of nowhere. Um, so, the first half of this match... Uh, actually, let's. I'll go into it this way. Matt told me, let me know when you've seen the Nigel McGuinness versus Cody Hawk match. And I was actually behind, so it took me a while to watch get up to that point in the show for this uh, review cycle and halfway about halfway through the match like a four or five minutes in i thought oh god is this gonna be one of those things where matt really notices something and i completely miss it and it's gonna be so embarrassing because i'm gonna look like an idiot i was like 
did I already see what Matt's was talking about and just didn't pick up on the significance of it? And right about when I thought that, Nigel McGuinness and Cody Hawk do the Brian Danielson-Nigel McGuinness unified match spot, which if you've seen the match, you know immediately what I'm talking about. If you haven't, it's a very infamous spot where... Brian Danielson, gra- Brian Danielson and Nigel McGuinness are standing outside the ring, kind of at opposite ends of a ring post. Brian Danielson grabs Nigel McGuinness's arms and basically pulls Nigel headfirst really hard into the ring post, so hard over and over that it busts um, Nigel McGuinness's head open hard way. It was a very very talked about spot when it happened it was very controversial there was especially with the concussion problems both men would have in the future or even at that time there was a lot of talk of like is this needed in wrestling should those guys have done it you know are they too good of wrestlers that they don't need to do something like that how reckless are they being all the stuff matt they he does the same spot here in a random undercard match like two and a half years prior and nobody remembers it. Yeah, I uh, he he might not even remember it. I don't even I don't mean that as a joke on his memory. I just mean like me, even if his memory is fine, like he might not even remember it. But there's like um, I was watching it and I was like, oh, he hit, he did that spot, but I guess he just didn't do it as flush as he did against Danielson. Then he's bleeding profusely during the entire match. I'm like, oh shit, he did do it as flush. Um, what the fuck? Like, what is wrong with him? Like, I guess he earned himself a job. I don't know. And uh, Mike Johnson would uh, write up some notes on this uh, for PW Insider after the show. And he said that uh, the cut was so bad from that hard way cut on the ring post, Nigel actually needed to get stitches afterwards. So, yeah, it was very legit. And he bleeds quite a bit from this cut. And, again, just a hard way cut, him allowing his head to get rammed into a ring post so hard it, like, breaks the skin badly. This might be the most surprising thing I've ever seen on an ROH show. Like, like just like the fact that this spot happened um, two and a half years before it famously happened. And, yes, like you said, nobody remembers or talks about it. That's really weird. Like, I posted on on, uh, a a little clip of it on Twitter a couple days ago, and I was surprised by, you know, it got retweeted a fair bit, and the the number of people, including people that, you know, know their wrestling and been following it for a long time, who were like, holy shit, I do not remember this ever happening. Yeah, it's... It's insane. Like, and like you would think that Nigel would have mentioned it, like when he's and, you know, done his recap to his career, talked about you know all that stuff. And he certainly talks about the um, the UK match a lot, but yeah, definitely does not talk about him doing it against Cody Hawk. Does this mean that? Does this mean that there's been other times that he's done it too? That's what that's what I was going to ask. I was going to say if anyone who's watching this show, uh, listening to the show right now, if you can think, if you know of a third example of Nigel doing this spot in any wrestling, please again write to us at throughtheyears at gmail dot com because I would be really curious if this is literally like a two time thing where maybe he just got this idea and was like, you know what, one day for a really big match, I'm going to do this again, or if maybe this was like a semi. Well, it can't be that regular because again, no one really remembers him doing much of this, but maybe he did do this like five times in his career, and we just don't know it. I I, I can say that no one that's like seen the clip on. Twitter has come up and said anything like, oh yeah, he did that at this show I was at. Like, no one's mentioned that. The response has been nothing but, holy cow, I can't believe he did it a second time. Yeah, it's crazy. So, 
Yeah, yeah, so that kind of overshadows the match. But then one other crazy thing happens. Uh, shortly after that, I believe, Cody Hawk does the goddamn muscle buster. And uh, it's funny because uh, Gabe tries to kind of cover up where he says something like, uh, not, as, not as devastating as when Samoa Joe does it. And to be fair, he didn't do it as good as Samoa Joe would do it. He drops to his knees instead of like a flat back bump. But right after seeing one crazy thing, you're like, holy shit, I did not expect this either. As a match, I mean, it's definitely overshadowed. The whole match is overshadowed by the Nigel spot. I mean, it was perfectly enjoyable for at for the first half pre that spot. Um, Nigel's um, kind of British spots that would be his staples. You could they were still novel to crowds at this point. So even things that would maybe the crowd would get a bit more fickle to, they really enjoyed. And I felt like the second half of the match kind of. After he got he got rammed into the the ring post, it 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 kind of got derailed because Nigel the whole rest of the match is really selling for the most part. The end of the match comes out of nowhere where he just kind of trips Cody Hawk and and rolls him up quickly. And it's weird because if you listen to the commentary of this match, Gabe is only hyping Nigel as the one guy of these two that has like a future in Ring of Honor, and clearly he saw something in him. But yet the way this match has worked. It ends with, like, Nigel looking like he just barely survived and that Cody Hawk might actually be the more badass wrestler of the two. Well, I guess part of it is probably maybe maybe Gabe, Gabe didn't book the match itself. Like, you know, he picked Nigel to win because Nigel's the champion, but they decided how they were going to lay out their match. And maybe Gabe would have put Nigel over stronger? I don't know. Or Gabe yeah. just did this commentary after the fact, um, you know, and was very impressed with how Nigel was willing to kill himself. And that does make sense, too, because a lot of times I could see, like, if just the wrestlers were allowed to make up the match on the fly, I could see Nigel thinking, since I'm winning and this guy's not ha- hasn't had a shot in Ring of Honor before, like, I want to make him look as good as, as possible in losing, which would be, like, a selfless wrestler type thing. Or part of me even is, one, is even wondering, like, did he get legit rocked from getting rammed into the ring post? Like, maybe he just couldn't be as active, because... It definitely in the match, it is sold as like a game-changing moment where he is very on the ropes after he gets his head rammed in. Yeah, I mean, it definitely. I mean, he definitely was <laughs> knocked a little loopy. I mean, how could he not have been? So there is that. But I don't know as far as how it um, affected the plans. Um, for me, the match. You know, I mean, all I remember about the match and all I will ever remember about the match was that spot. Um, like before that, I was writing stuff like, you know, the crowd always enjoys it when Nigel does his little Britishy stuff. Um, mm-hmm. that always works. I also thought it was funny where, um, I couldn't tell if I thought this was cute or like a dick move, but Gabe on commentary was quizzing Chris Nelson on the code of honor. Um, I couldn't, te- <laughs> I couldn't tell if like that was like a fun thing they had planned or if Gabe was just like, yes, let's see how well you did your studying. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to, uh, knock Cody Hawk for doing the muscle buster, but to be fair, Joe had only done it, what, twice in ROH at that point? Yeah, it, it was not a regular thing for him at this point. He'd done it against Homicide at, uh, Do or Die, which was months and months and months earlier, and then I think he had maybe done it once more, maybe, in Ring of Honor up to this point? He did it against AJ Styles. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah if you're not watching all the, I mean... <laughs> The DVD releases being what they are, even if he, Cody Hawk was a diehard Ring of Honor fan, it might have been hard to get that knowledge at this point. I agree. Um, 
so the, I mean, it was pretty intense for a second match on the card between two guys that were not ROH regulars. Um, but uh, the match, I mean, it wasn't like much of a match if you're really being uh, objective about it. But it sure was memorable, uh, even though apparently nobody remembered it. (laughs) And I I guess that's a lesson, which is your spots, it it really is a lot of times not what you do, but where you do it. Because everyone remembers the unified spot. No one remembers this spot. It's the same spot. Yeah, it sure is. It really is just, you know, if you do it in a big, you know, if you do something crazy in a big match, People will remember it forever. If you do something crazy and you're like a low card guy on a B show, you you're kind of wasting it because I feel kind of bad. Like there, there's an argument to be made that he should never have done the spot ever, but certainly he didn't. I don't think he got much out of it from doing it here because I don't think this spot is like the reason he got a regular Ring of Honor job. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe he. I, maybe he thinks it is. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there probably is like. I don't know. It's just. I don't think it's the. I don't think it's the spot alone. But do I think it's possible that Gabe was like, "Oh, this guy is really willing to, you know, give his body for his art, and like he's he has passion, and that spot added to his perception of that." I think that's possible. Yeah, and, and certainly Nigel was a guy. If not, I mean, he was a lot of things, but one thing he uh, among those was he was super, probably way too willing to really put his body on the line to try and like impress the fans. Absolutely. So uh, next we join Colt Cabana for another good times, great memories. He teases that CM Punk is coming on as is the running joke. And then he introduces Ace Steel. Ace says he got into wrestling after winning a bowling tournament with his mom. They're doing a bit of a comedy promo here. Ace says the trophy he won for the tournament was great, but he hasn't seen it in years. So Colt yells Rob for, for Rob Feinstein to bring out the trophy. Instead of Rob, a little boy comes out with it. Matt, I believe <laughs> this was the same little boy that um, Colt asked where Rob Feinstein was when they did the last Dayton show. Which are the Ohio show when Colt was trying to find out what the field of honor was. I think this is like a canon Ring of Honor character, the Ohio area little boy that is a Ring of Honor fan that somehow knows Rob Feinstein. <laughs> yes, he and, knew that he knew that he was on the crapper. Um, yes. and, asked, and Cabana yeah. called him El Ijo del Feinstein. <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah, when Colt asks where Rob is, the kid replies that he's in the crapper. Um, let me just see here. Colt gives the kid Ace's seat on the set for Good Times, Great Memories, but almost immediately the kid says he has to go to the crapper, which, again, presumably that's where Rob is, and I just wrote the jokes right themselves. And yes, they sure do. And and Colt goes, after he says, I gotta use the crapper, Colt just like, us as an aside, is like, is that what the kids are calling it these days? Which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, I think, by the way, before, uh, before you continue, um, at the, uh, at Death Before Dishonor, when Cabana like was acting silly, Punk says to him, if Ace was here, he'd slap you. But we see clearly in this sketch that actually Ace enjoys the silliness just as much as Colt does. Yeah, like, it, it's not like Colt's the one guy that's standing out. Like, we've seen those segments before where, like, Ace and Lucy and Colt were all being silly together. Like, the dynamic of the Second City Saints is clearly... Punk is the only serious one that's just kind of getting this ragtag group of knuckleheads to take things seriously by berating them. So um, going back to the promo, 
Colt says he is a 1993 hopscotch champion and was also a truck driver at the time, trying to win his son's love. Colt says he beat the greatest, quote, one-legged retarded midget, unquote, so you know, trying to be edgy. And- it's problematic in so many ways. <laughs> uh, mercifully, CM Punk comes in with Tracy Brooks, who is making her Ring of Honor debut with not a ton of on-camera explanation. She's just the new girl. Not only I would not a ton of on-camera explanation is the biggest understatement you've ever made. <laughs> they don't acknowledge her existence at all. She is literally just standing there. I believe the closest we get to an explanation later is Gabe offhandedly mentions, you know, oh, the second city saints wanted someone to even the tide against the prophecies Alice in Danger. So, as always in Ring of Honor at this point, a woman exists mostly just to counteract somebody else's woman who is there to have boobs and get attacked by men. Alice in Danger is the only woman in ROH to have a real character. And yes, she is mostly there to get attacked by men. And even she had to like earn that over a period of time. Yes. Stick around long enough to get that respect. Um, So yeah, CM Punk berates both Ace and Colt for goofing off tonight when they have a big match where they need to get revenge for Lucy. Punk browbeats them pretty severely. He asks to see their game faces and says they're going to end the prophecy in one night tonight. Uh, I'll just say Ace has a much better game face than Colt does. Colt goes, he ruined my talk show, but he's right. (laughs) Which is kind of funny. Uh, That brings us to the third match of the night, which is a pure wrestling title tournament qualifier, even though... It has not worked with pure wrestling rules at all, not even the three rope break. And it is Chris Sabin defeating Jimmy Jacobs via pinfall in 10 minutes, 49 seconds, after he hits a cradle shock off the second turnbuckle. Matt, another early Jimmy Jacobs match. What do you think about this? Well, first of all, Shane Hagedorn, on an honorable mention, had a fun scoop, which was that this match was made a pure title qualifying match after the fact in post-production and originally had nothing to do with that. And um, I think, like, Saban wasn't even originally going to be in the tournament, so that's why they just changed, the, changed this to a qualifying match. I don't know if that's 100% true, but I tend to trust Shane on issues like this. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, the, uh, I thought this match was a lot of fun. I thought Saban got over better than he did in any other ROH match. I mean, it was mostly a lot of big moves. There wasn't a ton of story to it. But both guys looked good. Um, the stuff they did was was good. It got over. Um, uh, my my favorite spot was when Jacobs jumped off the top rope and he and Saban caught him in like a brainbuster position and hit the brainbuster for a two count. I thought that was really cool. I um, I also liked the spot where where Saban threw Jacobs into the guardrail, but he like ran him all the way around the ring first before he threw him into the guardrail. Um, so. Um, you know, Saban's offense was really the highlight of the match, but you know, Jacobs did a good job selling well. Um, he uh, and the, the finish of the match. Uh, well, first of all, Jacobs was bleeding from the mouth after some of the stuff that Saban did. It was really a showcase for Saban, but um, he did a top rope uh, cradle shock for the win. Got the dangerous chant or uh, the dangerous call by uh, Gabe and the win. Yeah, I thought it was fun. It got over well. I, uh, uh, it's not anything that anyone's going to need to go out of their way to see, but a very worthy addition to an ROH undercard, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I uh, completely agree with you. This was just, you know, nothing special, but like a, re, an entertaining, like decent, like this is what you want a third match on the card to be 
kind of little 10-minute undercard match. It, uh, I agree with you that um, we've been pretty underwhelmed by Chris Saban's early Ring of Honor run. This, I agree with you, this was his easily his best performance so far. Not that it was like, like a show-stealing performance, but he looked good here. And I, I thought Jimmy Jacobs actually looked really good, too. I thought he brought a lot of energy and personality to the match, especially because he still had his Huss gimmick at this point, his, like, berserker light gimmick with the Huss on the back of the tights and, you know, the furry boots and all that. He took a big bump, part, like, so a couple big bumps, like, particularly where he did his top rope senton and he let Saban get the knees up, so he took double knees right in the back. I thought that was pretty big and uh the one thing i thought that kind of made me laugh during this match though was at one point he does the bruiser brody big like king kong knee drop and even though jimmy jacobs has huss on the back of his tights does all the brody mannerisms and has the big furry boots he still felt the need to yell brody before doing the knee drop just in case people didn't get the reference like i love that (laughs) it's like just in case you guys don't know Clearly, I am impersonating Bruiser Brody. That'd be like if, if like, um, Jay Lethal as Black Machismo, before he did the top rope elbow drop, was like, Randy Savage, just in case you don't know, that's what this is a tribute to. But, yeah, there wasn't a lot of a story to the match. It was just a fun burst of 10 minutes of action wrestling and fun. And going back to the old Gabe Sapolsky thing, the trend of the night, Gabe talks about, again that pure wrestling isn't just technical wrestling. He says the pure wrestling division is just competitive wrestling as if all wrestling isn't a competition. Like, so I guess now any match is a pure wrestling match if it's not a squash, because that's what he says in this match. He says technical, he says pure wrestling isn't technical wrestling. It's we're just, it's just competitive wrestling. Yeah, Uh, I guess. uh, Yeah, I guess it's long as it's not a squash. Apparently, there was a six-man pure wrestling match as the main event on this show. <laughs> it's very competitive. Next up, we have a four-corner match. I have no idea if this is pure wrestling or not. It was uh, Jimmy Rave defeating Caprice Coleman, Rain Man, and Todd Sexton in 10 minutes and 7 seconds when J- Rave pinned Sexton after hitting the Doppler effect running knee, or as Gabe would call it a hundred times on a hundred shows, the Shining Wizard. Um... This is the debut for Ring of Honor debut for everyone in this match except Jimmy Rave. And I actually thought everyone looked good. Actually, in a way, I thought Jimmy Rave kind of got overshadowed in the match he won. I think partly because his style, he's not he I don't think his wrestling style lends itself for to these kind of flashy spot fest matches because this was basically just a scramble match and he did do more flashier spots than he might normally do in a singles match he even did a dive to the floor but at the same time i just felt like he was overshadowed by everyone particularly caprice coleman who i thought was i i know he gets a few more matches in ring of honor in 2004 after this but it looked like he really should have been a regular after this match because his athleticism was not only the best in this match, it's better than quite a few regulars. I mean, he does some cool innovative moves in this match, like a Canadian backbreaker into a pile driver, but really it's just how smooth and fluid he like you just look at him and go, That's a goddamn athlete when you watch him in this match. And but you know, I thought him he was probably the standout. Rainman stood up for his reaction. I was wondering, like, why is Rainman so over? Was he huge locally? But um, Michael Laney has a little 
explanation from this from his live report. He wrote, You hear a lot of Rain Man chants during the Four Corners survival match. Rain Man didn't do anything in particular to get the crowd behind him. The two college guys asked me about the match, and after I explained that three of the guys were making their debut, they decided that they were going to treat one of these unknown guys as a superstar. A decent portion of our section got into it, and Rain Man gave us all hugs afterwards. I would like to think this is part of the reason that Rain Man was brought back for the next Dayton show. So... Yeah, I thought it might have been a local thing. According to this, like it was a lot of just fans deciding, you know what, we're going to cheer for one of these guys, and it's going to be Rain Man. Uh, Matt, what did you think about this as just a like a four-corner spot best? Uh, I don't think I liked it as much as you. I thought there was some awkwardness. Um, I definitely, you know, the Rain Man stuff stood out. I did enjoy Caprice's like boxing-style footwork and stuff. I thought it stood out. It's crazy that he like did two ROH shows here and then came back like what six, seven years later. Um, like he's doing the commentary now for major Ring of Honor shows. Like, yeah, it's weird that it. Yeah, yeah. I mean. You know, I guess I was like, he must have been really young here, but I think he's just kind of old now, right? Um, <laughs> I'll have to look that up. I don't mean uh, that to be mean. I just mean like he's he's not he's not he, that young. Like you don't think he's like a Slim J or something that like was eighteen at this point? No, I don't think so. I, I'm pretty sure that he's. I could be wrong. I'm gonna actually look I'm that up. up. Okay, he's cool. forty-two, and he, in fact, uh, his birthday is late March, so he's about to turn forty-three in a. Uh, five days so uh happy birthday uh caprice coleman if you're listening to this yeah so he's not it's he's definitely not um well actually the thing that i'm looking at says that his birthday was a couple days ago when he's actually 42 he just turned 42 oh yeah actually yeah my eyes i misread that zero as a six i probably need to improve get glasses a newly turned 42 so i don't mean to say (laughs) that he's old like old old but you know he's not like he was super young then and now he's in his early 30s or his mid 30s you know that's all i meant um but um he looked good um todd sexton at one point does a dive onto rave but that he basically almost took like a full header into the ground but Rave's body blocked it. So it's almost like he did a diving headbutt into Rave's chest just because Rave basically saved his life on the catch. Um, that looked a little bit scary to me. Um, some other funny things was when um, uh, Rain Man hit a spine buster, but that Nelson called it Arn Anderson style, but actually it wasn't Arn Anderson style at all. It was much more like a sky high kind of mm. move. Um, also, Rayman did an atomic drop style move on Sexton, but he did it into the mat instead of onto his knee. And Gabe goes, he landed right on his ass, which is <laughs> a funny thing for an announcer to say. Um, yeah, I don't know. There was just some awkwardness. They did a lot of those. They did some of those spots where like people like get submissions on each other and stuff like that. Um, here, one of the, uh, the things that I'm, I'll call out Nelson for. Um, so Sexton has a figure four on Coleman, and like uh, Rayman is kind of out to the side. And Nelson says, sometimes in four corners matches, guys get a chance to take a breather. And uh, that's what Rainman's doing. And it's like, is in the middle of a submission move the time to be taking a breather in a four corners match? I'm thinking no. And I, I'm thinking that's so. That's kind of a weird call right there. Um, I um, Yeah, I'd, I'd say, you know, it's good that Rave had the opportunity to get a win, finally. Um, but... Um, but I, I don't know. I, the match didn't really totally stand out to me. It was fine. It was fine for what it was. It certainly wasn't a bad match, but not particularly memorable. 
One funny thing is uh, the Pro Wrestling Torch would later report that Caprice Coleman, Rain Man, and Todd Sexton debuted for ROH this past weekend and impressed Ring of Honor officials. Coleman returns on January 29th. I believe um, Rain Man also returned for one or two more shows, I think. I think he was on that one, yeah. Yeah, but Todd Sexton did not. So maybe Todd Sexton did not impress them as much. I don't know. He didn't impress me as much. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't bad here, but he was kind of just there. He was just another cog in the machine here. Was he in Do or Die? Was he, was uh, he, at, was he on that show? Oh, he might, I'm not even sure. God, my memory is bad. But um, after the match, we uh, AJ Styles catches Jimmy Rave backstage, and he tells Jimmy that he's proud of him, and AJ says he's finally ready, and Rave's like, for what? He's like, to face me. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, and that leads us actually to an AJ Styles match. It's AJ Styles defeating Homicide via pinfall in 22 minutes, 7 seconds after uh, AJ hits the Styles Clash. Matt, he, he, does, he does wrestle at Do or Die 2, which is a couple months after this. Oh, okay. Just so, yeah, he does get a future shot. Yes. My mistake. Sorry. So, um,. Matt, what did you think? I, I don't know if this was the first time in, in all of independent wrestling. It very may, well may have been. But it was definitely the first time AJ Styles wrestled Thomas High for Ring of Honor. What did you think? And, and again, going back to um, at an honorable mention, a little tidbit from them, I believe uh, Shane Hagedorn really made sure to emphasize this was like on the posters or whatever, like basically the main selling point of this show when they were trying to get people to attend. So... What do you think about this kind of pretty big matchup just to throw out there with no storyline? Yeah, I, I don't know if my opinion on this is going to be controversial. So, like, the crowd was very excited at the beginning of the match, but then they worked very slow, almost like they were going to be doing, like, a 60-minute match. Like, that's how slow they were going at the beginning. Um, but, like, you know, things, you know, start to pick up a little bit. You know, Homicide, you know, he went shoulder first into the guardrail. You know, there were things like that. One of the first... Um, big moves was a, a backdrop driver by AJ that looked good um, you know they were they were doing um, they were doing some cool stuff um, but it was you know wasn't totally in super high gear but then homicide dove does his tope con hilo into the crowd he sails over AJ into the crowd um, and the ref calls for help because he's concerned about homicide now the crowd gets hushed, like, because uh, people start to check on Homicide. And listening to an honorable mention, they made it sound like this was a real injury. Um, didn't seem that way as I watched it, so what I thought was strange was they make this big deal about Homicide being hurt, and the ref's like, he's, he, was, he wants to keep going, and the crowd chants his name. And, st- you know, Styles has been down the entire time, too. And that, you know, kind of undermined the Homicide is Hurt gimmick. And then Homicide was in control when they got back into the ring. So it's like, was Homicide hurt? Because if he wasn't, it's weird that they made a big deal about his injury, but he was back in control as the match started again. So I guess he was hurt. But I don't know. It was just very strange to me. Uh, I don't, did, did you have a take on that? I I am not 100% sure, but I have put thought into this. I think it's a legit injury, and I'll say why, which is um, a few minutes before this uh, part of the match, uh, AJ starts working a specific body part on um, Homicide. He starts working over his, his ribs, like he does a couple cool like stomach breakers and just kicks them hard in the ribs. So he's clearly zeroing in on that 
body part, which makes sense because it sets up the Styles Clash. And then when Homicide like does this Tope Kahilo, he's selling his arm, like grabbing it in pain. The rest of the match, AJ doesn't do a thing to it. Like he ignores it. He just keeps working over the ribs. But Homicide is like selling his arm. So I, I think if this was part of the story, AJ wouldn't be ignoring it. And I also think like what you said, which is Homicide has to spend a lot of time recovering, like in the crowd after this Tobey Kanhilo, and it's ridiculous because, as you said, Homicide then like AJ has to sell this Tobey Kanhilo for longer than any wrestlers ever sold it, <laughs> because Homicide basically like when he finally gets up, grabs AJ who's still selling on the floor, and then pulls him into the ring and keeps control. So to me, again, I think if that was a planned spot, wouldn't you use that spot for AJ to like? turn the tide and not have AJ have to do this really weird like eight hour sell job to buy time for homicide yeah it makes sense but man what bad luck does homicide have with these injuries like oh my gosh I mean once they get back into the ring you know things definitely pick up you know um AJ escapes the cop kill, uh, uh, side hits a low blow and a pile driver it's funny because when homicide hits a low blow in matches in the future, he's an evil villain, but I think we've talked about this before. When he does it in like as a babyface, you're just like, oh, low blow by homicide. No big deal. Yeah. Um, it's just whatever the st- fits the storyline. Um, and so AJ hits the disc, hits Larry, it gets to... Um, he uh, pulls uh, Homicide off the top, but Homicide responds with like a, a fighting spirit mafia kick, and the crowd really wakes up for that. They do the forearm exchange, um, and they do... Uh, and, and AJ hits uh, Arana... But and rolls through for the Styles Clash. Um, I don't know. There was just some awkwardness about this to me. It didn't feel like it totally gelled, and there wasn't a lot of intensity until like down the stretch. Um, and and the, st- the thing in the middle kind of took me out of the match. I don't know. It just it just like with the the, the injury. I guess it wasn't their fault, but it was just weird to me. Um, still got an ROH chant though, so I might be in the minority in this one. I would say th- this. I, I would call this a just like a solid like. My old catchphrase, low good. I would even wouldn't even say low. I just think it's middle of the road good, but like nothing special. I if I had to give it like a star rating, like three and a quarter, maybe three and a half, somewhere in that range. Does that make it disappointing? Uh, that's that's what I was going to say. Which is, if this was two random guys, that'd be a good win for the undercard. But like if this was Chris Sabin and Jimmy Jacobs at this point in their careers, you'd go great. But when it's Homicide AJ Styles, their first time meeting. Yeah, you definitely want more than this. So it does not live up to expectations. It, it's weird, like, a few minutes before around the 12 14, to 14 minute mark, somewhere in there, that's where Homicide gets hurt. I felt like, okay, this match is starting to ramp up. It feels like it's going to be like a good 12, 13 minute match. And then all of a sudden, just when it's starting to pick up, AJ slows it down again with, like, she starts working over the ribs. And then you go, okay, it's going for like 20 something minutes. And then. Once Homicide, in the middle of that match, he, he gets hurt on the Tope Kanhilo, like, they do keep wrestling for quite a few minutes afterwards, but it never it never kicks into that extra gear. And I wonder, I wonder if this is like a case like the last match Homicide had against Kojima, where maybe they were planning for something more, and Homicide just couldn't do it, or, or, or if this is literally, like you said, maybe they just didn't kind of sync up you know, maybe there was just sometimes when guys wrestle each other for the first time, especially things don't always mesh immediately. So 
I don't know, but either way, it's I feel bad for Homicide because he's gotten two really big matches in Ring of Honor on back-to-back shows, and both times he's gotten hurt, and both times as wrestling matches they've been disappointing. So, yeah, I feel bad for him. Um, Michael Laney had a note on this match, too. He said, During the Homicide versus AJ match, you see Homicide stop and stare down a guy in the crowd. This was because the guy called him New Jack. After this match, the crowd was chanting match of the year and thank you both. Michael adds, this was a good match, but you have to admit there's absolutely no way that someone could actually consider this a match of the year. And I think we, you and me, Matt, both agree. Yeah, this this is not where, nowhere close to a match of the year. No, nowhere close. But, you, you or, know, or, or match of the night even. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I don't know. I... I well, I, I, I will strongly disagree with this being even a possible match of the night based on what I, my, my uh, uh, you know, feelings about the other matches. I, I did also want to single out, um, like, I did like that they were trying to do, both guys are pretty versatile wrestlers, like Homicide especially. I did like that they were trying to do, like, a bit of brawling, a bit of mat work, a bit, I, I liked, and a bit of more high impact and athletic stuff i liked that they were trying to do a mix of everything and i did think there was one really cool sequence that you didn't mention where um homicide tries to whip aj into the barricade on the floor and aj basically does like a baseball slide but not like a baseball slide wrestling move but like i'm sliding on the bare floor to stop my momentum so i don't hit the barricade and then homicide charges at aj and aj leapfrogs homicide so he runs right into the barricade and there was a couple sequences like that, which I thought were pretty fun. But, yeah, even if I like this match a little more than you, I absolutely agree. Disappointing. And we'll never know why it was disappointing. Could have been the injury. Could have been just didn't click. But either way, backstage, we are now in intermission. And it's Les Thatcher substituting again for Gary Michael Capetta. So between this and the last Ring of Honor show he substituted, I'm just going to guess that Gary Michael Capetta is allergic to Ohio, mm-hmm. I presume. Uh, Les breaks the news to the Carnage crew that Special K will have a new member working tonight. DeVito is mad because his daughter listens to crappy techno techno music, and I thought this pro was kind of weird because he just rants about that element of it, and I thought, I kept thinking to myself, DeVito, on the last show, you said your, your daughter got slipped ecstasy at a rave. And now this show, you don't even mention. It, you're just like, yeah, my daughter listens to that crappy techno music. And, and like, didn't he? Didn't he say she was like what, like 13 or something like that? Yeah, something like that. It's like there was very, very dark implications in that final battle promo. And this promo is more just like, yeah, she listens to that damn technical mu- techno music. It's driving me crazy. Like it was very strange. I noted that too. It's like the tone of this angle has shifted dramatically between these two shows. Like in less in like two weeks' time, you've you've gotten over a pretty serious thing. It sounds like, yeah. But, so going back for coming out of intermission, Michael Laney gives a little note of there was a match cut from the DVD release. He says right after intermission, there was also Mike Mondo versus Seth Skyfire in a dark match that was cut. From what I remember, this wasn't a very good match. Mondo came out with a sign that read "Godzilla fears Mondo." Crowd didn't really react to either guy and didn't care about the match. Yeah, so as the Observer quote we mentioned earlier said, uh, these were both kind of uh, Jim Cornette guys from the OVW days. So I presume this was kind of just as a favor of, hey, if you book me, could you also give these guys a little shot? And apparently it wasn't that good. So uh, even if it was good, you know, probably would have been cut from this DVD because like you mentioned earlier, not a lot of very tight 
schedule on this show. They didn't have a lot of room to spare. Right. So that brings us to a eight-man tag team scramble match. Special K of Dixie, Hydro, Joey Matthews, and Slim J defeat the Carnage crew of DeVito and Loke and the Ring Crew Express of Dunn and Marcos in nine minutes, 44 seconds, when Slim J pinned Loke after Abyss debuted and interfered. So the first thing I'll say is the debuting member of Special K is part of the entourage, and it is Mello, who fans will know better as Sal Renaro, future Ring of Honor tag champ Sal Renaro. He does one dive in this match. I thought as a, as a wrestling match, this was enjoyable. This was fun. As a scramble, it's, it's really like just, it's just a scramble, and I mean that not in a bad way or a good way. I think one thing that I've learned from watching all the rewatching all these ring of honor shows from the beginning is there's a definite formula to the scramble and scrambles to me are almost like when your parents made casseroles out of leftovers when you were growing up. And you know, that's probably not a universal thing, but it's like there were, there was always this thing of didn't matter what the leftovers were. It always tasted the same. (laughs) I feel like these ring of honor scrambles are kind of getting to that point where it doesn't matter who's in them. They always kind of feel the same, and they're always reasonably entertaining, and they always have the same tropes. Like, this has all the same tropes you've come to expect. There's uh, the dive train. There's the the end where it all breaks down. Everyone's coming in and out, which I guess is part of the scramble rules. There's the, the moment where everyone has to be in a submission at the same time. There's Special K cheating and Gabe just saying, well, it's Special K, it doesn't matter. Or in this case, he says, it's part of relaxed rules, quote-unquote. And Again, like these, all these matches, like in a way, it's admirable that that we've gotten to see over the course of these couple of years how those first early attempts at scramble matches, before they even called them scramble matches, weren't particularly good. So it is kind of like cool to see how all these wrestlers kind of figured out over a couple of years a formula that basically anyone could do. But at the same time, when you watch every single one, you see. It's just a formula, but it was it was a perfectly good example of that formula. I thought. What did you think about it? Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was entertaining, but I can't totally explain why it was good. Like there was just like there was lots of crazy stuff that happened. Joey Matthews was back, and it just felt so random that he was just back. Like I get that he turned on Alexis Lurie months earlier at Glory by Honor to officially bring him back into the Special K fold, but then he hadn't been seen since then. And, I, you know, I guess those are the kinds of things that remind you that ROH is an indie and they just don't have access to these guys a lot of the time. So when they do, it's like, all right, they do. And, you know, obviously Slim J is another one who's almost never there. Um, but in the early days of Special K, we always made mention of how Joey Matthews was, you know, the glue that made them entertaining, right? Like he had mm-hmm. so much charisma and stuff. And that definitely felt that way here. Um you know the crowd was like chanting for him early. He clearly added a lot of uh, a lot of personality, especially since the range isn't there anymore. Um, I feel like Joey was helpful, um, and you know there was some cool. Uh, there was a lot of cool moves. Um, at one point, Slim J did a diving headbutt to Devito's back while Devito was sitting up, and it was like, okay, well that seems pretty cool. Like that's not something I see yeah. very often. Slim J also did this like weird, I can't even describe what it was, but it was like a crazy twisting ace crusher type of move onto Loke. I don't know if you remember that. It was very hard to describe. Um, I'm not sure. Like Slim J, it's crazy. Like he did like four or five moves in this match, but they were all really cool. 
Yeah, he does definitely. I mean, this is clearly why Gabe liked him. Like, he does a lot of really cool moves. Um, at one point, DeVito is just like bleeding um, incredibly after a drop to hold into a chair. Then, um, then Dixie is somehow bleeding a lot too. It's it's just it's weird. Um, I did notice that the announcers didn't mention DeVito's daughter angle at all. Um, and at one point, Chris Nelson, this is one of the cringe moments he says about, about, um, uh, the Carnage crew. I'm glad they're beating up these rich kids instead of their wives and family. (laughs) I missed that. Oh my. (laughs) Meanwhile, these are baby faces. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a problem. Uh, it's where the word problematic comes from, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, like, so the match was a mess, but I cannot deny that it was entertaining. Like, it was, it was a very entertaining match. Um, the crowd was really into it. I thought it was funny when Abyss came out at the end that at first they were like, who is that? (laughs) (laughs) That (laughs) Who is this masked man? That that was I, I wrote that down. I thought this was insane. Where um, uh, so this is Abyss making his Ring of Honor debut. He the end of this match, uh, Abyss comes out, and you know that leads to the finish, distraction, and interference win. And so Abyss comes out. And so for those who have forgotten who Abyss is, he's like a six foot eight guy with a mask and long hair and tattoos on his arms, wearing a vest. And so Abyss comes out, and Gabe is like, "Who is this guy?" Who is he? What's, what's he doing here? And it takes him like 15, 20 seconds. He's like, oh, that's, I know that guy. That's Abyss. <laughs> it's like, you can, is there a lot of guys in your life, Gabe, that are like six foot eight and wear masks and have long hair? And like, uh, I just wrote my notes. I guess the one guy he looks a lot like is Joseph Park. That's yes. That, that famous lawyer. That's true. But then, of course, Gabe has to say, this man is a monster. And who are those sluts with him? <laughs> Uh, that's the other thing. Abyss comes out with two random women for no reason. Even later on, like, it appears that even, like, Special K, when they do a backstage segment later, like, no one knows why these women are there, what their purpose is, why Abyss brought them, why they're hanging out with Abyss. It's just, they're just there. After that sluts line, I wrote, is Gabe from Gilead? Because <laughs> he, he says that word a lot. <laughs> And yeah, and you and did and so Gabe is from Massachusetts, right? And you know that in the Handmaid's Tale, that's supposed to be like the Boston area that that's taking place in. So you know, maybe from Gilead. <laughs> Gabe needs to give someone an evolve the off red uh, gimmick. Oh no, please no. don't. <laughs> So, so there was another twi- uh, cringe bit of uh, Chris Nelson commentary here. He says, uh, Chris Nelson says he likes Becky Bayless. Gabe says she's daddy's little girl. And if Chris talks to her, she'll probably do him. Uh, Chris then replies, that's why he likes Becky. But then he goes on and says, it's hard to find women who will do me, which I wrote in my notes. That's the kind of self-deprecation that is through the years brand. Don't infringe on our gimmick, Chris. That's right. Yeah. But, um. The other notes on this match, I, I just you had said a couple things that I really agreed with. Like, I wrote in my notes actually, like Joey Matthews is such a glue guy. He kind of reminds me of like Christopher Daniels in multi man matches, where he's not as flashy as the other guys, but he really feels like the guy you want in a big, crazy match with eighteen people that can kind of hold it together and keep it from falling apart. Uh, even just watch him in the very opening sequence where he just kind of has a mini match with uh, Marcos, I believe, and it, it's really. Uh, a good example of 
a veteran guy leading a promising but you know kind of green guy through a sequence of wrestling moves. You can really see why he was already like considered like a good veteran hand. And yeah, I thought every again I want I believe this is Slim J's last match in Ring of Honor at least for this run he would get to do spot duty years and years later. Was he not and, in the big match at uh at, oh, at, at, it, at the, I mean, at, at our best, the big uh, cage he, match? He might be. I'm not sure. But if, if this isn't his last one, I think it's his second to last one. It's, okay. It's either... The, but, yeah, going to what we said before, I thought everything he did, really cool. He did a corkscrew plancha to the outside. He did a cravat into knees, into, like, a standing slice bread number two. And, like, the other thing I thought I, I, that you mentioned that I agree with you, like, I thought it was weird that Dixie and DeVito bled because I realized they're trying to continue the Special K Carnage Crew feud. But this match felt like just such a regular scramble match that felt really out of place to see two guys randomly bleed. Like, my impression wasn't what I got out of it wasn't me going, oh, this is really heating up the feud. It was like, you guys really didn't need to bleed on this <laughs> match. Like, you're wasting some cuts here. Yeah, you don't need to. It, 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 this match doesn't gain anything from you, poor guys, like cutting open your heads for a random scramble match. Oh, and one other note, and I might be completely wrong about this. D- to start the match, um, Joey peels to the outside and stalls, and then the ref follows him outside, and Joey throws the ref in the ring under the bottom rope like he's a wrestler. And I think you can hear Doug laugh from behind the handheld camera that's filming it like you hear a laugh like a really loud laugh and i think i think that's doug like <laughs> couldn't stop himself from laughing at joey matthews so i thought that was a cute moment but um after the match gabe wonders what abyss is doing in roh and quote who are those sluts there with him unquote devito attacks abyss but gets no sold and black hole slammed for his troubles the ring crew express try and fight him and they both get taken out then Dixie gets on the mic, and he says, Abyss is Special K's new insurance policy. And then Abyss then hits Dunn for, with a black hole slam for good measure. It's kind of interesting. Well, maybe not interesting, but, like, we spent most of 2003, or a lot of it, with Special K having big, tall slugger, like, as their muscle. And, like, once they lose him, a few shows later, it's like, well, they got to get another big, tall guy. Like that—that that just has to be a part of this group, apparently. Well, I mean, Abyss is better. <laughs> of the two. Yeah, he is. Although he he fills mostly the same role, and we don't actually because of the Feinstein scandal, we don't get to see him for quite a while. Actually, that's true. So, and that brings us to a Ring of Honor tag team title match: the Briscoes of Jay and Mark Briscoe defeat Brian Danielson and Samoa Joe in twenty four oh three. When Jay pins Danielson after he hits the Jay Driller, Matt, I have a lot to say about this match. I'm really interested in what you think because I'm wondering if we're going to have a big disagreement or not on this match. Yeah, I, um, I'm curious. I probably don't have as much to say on it as you do. Um, it's one of the longest ROH matches in a while. It was like 25 minutes, and I think it felt every bit of that. Um, it, um, what do I, where do I begin? Okay, well, first of all, Danielson and Joe are, like, kind of wearing matching tights. They're wearing blue and white. And Danielson has, like, a white on the front of his tights and, like, a, a blue back and a red waist. And I don't think I've ever seen him wear that before. Yeah, or they're since. very ugly. Yeah, or since. So I don't I – guess, I guess maybe he, brought, he introduced it, agreed with you, and decided against it. Um, I, um, I like that they started the match with Joe and Danielson doing, like – abdominal stretches because that played into uh 
the um, the the skit at the beginning. Well, that yeah. was that was that was kind of uh, a nice little touch. Um, so early on, they, it didn't seem like they were as clear-cut on the heel-face dynamic as they were in the match they had against Joe and AJ. But once they finally settled in, like finally settled in to um, Jay and Mark working on Danielson for a long time, a long time, they uh, they did do heel stuff. Like, you know, they um, like Joe and Jay had a chop exchange that Jay wins with an eye rake. You know, stuff like that. At one point, they do a thing where like they have Danielson in the corner in a hold. Jay distracts the ref, so... I mean, not Jay. Joe distracts the ref. So they do, like, a fake tag, where, like, one of the guys tags himself, basically, and jumps in. But I thought that was weird, because they were close enough together where they could have actually just tagged. So what's (laughs) the point of just slapping your own hand? I don't totally get that. Um, At one point, um, Gabe calls the Briscoes the best tag team in the world. I mean, one of the best in the world. The best in ROH. And I... (laughs) And I was like, why not just say the best in the world? What are you being humble for? Um, I would love if he kept backtracking. Like, clearly one of the best two tag teams in this match. <laughs> Gotta be in the top two here. Like, just kept, like, making it smaller and smaller, the, the like, compliment. Yeah. The early back and forth period, I thought, took a while, and the crowd kind of, like, got out of it. They actually, the, the Briscoes hit a doomsday device for two before they even got Danielson in as the face in peril. And they finally did. And so, so they do like, they're working on Danielson's back. They're the Boston Crabs. Um, the, that one point, uh, Danielson ducks and Jay kicks Mark with a Yakuza kick. And that's when Danielson tagged Joe. And, you know, he did his, his big moves. He hit a power bomb that Mark, that Chris Nelson called a pile driver, um, which I, you know, it happens. Um, and I like, you know, Joe, he does this like trash talk screaming when he gets Mark in, in holds and stuff. I enjoy that. Um, uh, Joe got the choke on Mark at one point, but Jay saved it with a kick. And that's when Danielson got the cattle mutilation on Mark. Jay broke that up. Um, uh, oh yeah, Dragon gets Jay in a victory roll, um, after they attempt the springboard doomsday device, um, Doomsday device, and that gets two. And then uh, there's a dragon suplex with a bridge that Mark breaks up with a double stomp, a top rope double stomp, which I thought was really cool. Finally, they get to the ole ole kick on the outside. And it just feels like meandering. So they do, um, they do, um, they get a two count while um, while dragon does the top rope back suplex on Jay, but the cameraman misses the two count, which. Oh. Which always bothers me because I guess they, they clearly have more than one camera. They could have edited it in, but they clearly the cameraman missed it completely. Um, after several attempts, Jay hit the Jay driller on Danielson. Mark hold Joe, held Joe back, and the Briscoes got the pin. Um, I thought it was. I didn't think it was bad. Like I don't know what you're going to say about it, but I, I didn't think it was a bad match. I thought it was solid, but I thought it was dry. I thought the finishing sequence was good, even though the early limb work was kind of thrown out the window. Um, but it just felt really long. It just it just didn't really hold together. I think, um, which is a similar thing that I could say about the homicide match. Honestly, um, I don't know. Like I felt like it just it just didn't feel particularly dynamic. Um, I'm curious what you think. So this is a really disappointing match. But I actually, in that sense, I agree with you that I don't think it's a terrible match just on its own. But here's where it really disappoints me. So. This is part of the Joe versus Briscoe's feud, and I really like the overall idea behind the Joe Briscoe's feud. Which, in case you haven't don't know, it's 
Joe feuds with the Briscoes. He's the world champ. The Briscoes are the tag champs. And every time Joe faces Jay or Mark in the, in a singles match, he beats them because Joe is a way better singles wrestler than Jay and Mark. But every time he uh, Joe faces the Briscoes in a tag match, he loses no matter what all-star partner he gets. And he gets three different all-star partners. He gets AJ, he gets Danielson, he gets Jerry Lynn. And what I really like about this storyline is normally I don't love 50-50 parody booking, but I think it's great here because like each team wins, but it makes sense because and it also like puts over each division that they're two different art forms. Like, yeah. The Briscoes are the best tag team, but that doesn't mean they're the best singles wrestlers. And yeah, Joe is the best singles wrestler, but that doesn't mean he can just pick any random great wrestler and be the best tag team. Like, in a way, it's the antidote to what WWE has done so many times over the years where they'll do like, oh, these two feuding top stars are going to randomly face the tag champions on Raw and they win the titles in their first match because tag teams are sucky. Like, this actually puts over both belts as like, no, they're two separate art forms and you, you being great at one doesn't mean you're going to be great at the other. So I love that the AJ uh, Joe versus Briscoe's match. We recently saw probably the best ring of honor tag match we've seen up to this point. And even though there was a miscommunication spot that led to Joe's team losing that match didn't feel like the, like the Briscoe's were outmatched and the story should be the Briscoe's aren't outmatched in tag teams. So you get to this match and the whole, until Danielson finally gets, like, taken out because of the cheating, the whole first half of the match is just Joe and, and Danielson toying with the Briscoes. Like, the Briscoes get in a move here or there, but it's never sustained. They always get cut off. There's a couple times where, like, Danielson or Joe will let one of the Briscoes tag out. Like, just let them tag out. And then the next guy, the other Briscoe comes in, and they get their ass kicked, too. Like, they look like there's nothing to AJ, I mean, to uh, Danielson and Joe. In fact, there's even a weird moment at one point where Brian Danielson whips one of the Briscoes, who he's been controlling, into the Briscoes' corner, and he immediately makes the tag, and, like, Jay makes the tag to Mark, and the announcers are even like, that's not a smart move by Danielson. Like, he just let him tag the fresh guy, and then it doesn't matter because Danielson kicks Mark's Briscoe's ass. So, it... I felt like it, the, the story of this match completely goes against the story of the feud. And then the end plays into that even more because the end is basically Jay beating um, Brian Danielson completely as a singles match because it's Joe's just killing Mark with Olay kicks on the outside and not paying attention. And Jay ends up basically having a mini match with Danielson and he gets the better of this guy in a singles match, basically. Which, again, I think that kind of goes against the story of the feud. Although I know you're, you're trying to set up Jay for another big Samoa Joe match. And then there's also, on top of all of that, there's the heel-face stuff you were talking about, which is, this is yet another feud where you don't know who the heels are. And then halfway through the, the match, the Briscoes start really healing it up, and that's where they get the big advantage from where they get to finally isolate Danielson thanks to healing. And then it's that weird thing where a lot of times in Ring of Honor, if guys heal, the announcers, especially Gabe, talk about it's like it's such a horrible thing. But whenever the Briscoes do it, they kind of like don't give a shit. They're just like, oh, that's smart stuff. Jim Cornette must be teaching them. Like it's so inconsistent when they get outraged by heel tactics and when like guys like the Briscoes can do it and it's just smart wrestling. 
And so all of that really took me out of the match. But as a wrestling match, it's not terrible, but like you said, I completely agree. It's dry. It's slow for a lot of it. Like, it's not... They don't do enough with the time they got, because they got a lot of time, which, again, is similar to the AJ Homicide match, where they also got a lot of time and didn't really take it up to that top level. And, yeah, it, it's just really disappointing. And it it's... I don't know who's idea it was to work the match this way but it, i just felt like it hit so many wrong notes for me in in how it stood in versus like the context of what i was expecting the match to be worked like i'll defend them a little bit in the first part like the critique that you gave where like it felt like the the danielson and and joe were toying with the briscoes so it's like Danielson and Jay, I mean Joe, are the faces, like by default here, right? Um, yeah. So it's pretty classic wrestling booking to have the baby faces, you know, kind of shine at the beginning, and the heels have to cheat to um, to take over. The problem is that it just went on for way too long. Like that's that's what I think. Because once they settled into the the you know like the more like traditional like face in peril kind of situation. I do think that the Briscoes look pretty dominant, um, at least for a while. Um, but to me, they had to cheat to get there. Like to me, the story of this match should have been the Briscoes use tag team wrestling to show they're the better tag team. That doesn't matter who Joe picks; they're better as a tag team than Joe can be with anybody. But instead, the story of this match was more AJ. I mean, um, I keep saying AJ, but Danielson and Joe like kind of dominate the Briscoes until the Briscoes start cheating. Yeah, I mean, he's like the wrong story. Yeah, and I, yeah, and it's more defensible, I think, if they had been like more all in on the Briscoes being dastardly heels. Um, you're right about that, and they're they're not. So I think that kind of undercuts the story they're trying to tell a little bit. Uh, I agree with you, but I just think, in essence, it's not. I don't think it's as bad as you uh, as you do, but I get what you're saying. Um, yeah, but I but I do also agree with you. Like if like one big hang up I had, if I ran a wrestling promotion, I would never have two singles guys just randomly become dominant tag team champions. I do like the idea that, like, to be a good tag team, you have to be a tag team specialist. And I would probably make even a rule that, like, you can't even get a tag team title shot unless you've won 10 tag team matches uh, as a team before that. Like, something like that. Just because, yeah, that's a that's a, just, like, a particular hang-up that I have. So I get what you're saying there. I just think in the realm of, you know, the way wrestling normally works, it's not so unusual to have, like, a team of dominant baby faces dominate a, ta- a, a heel tag team like that. I get your point, though. But but I think going to one point you made, though, which is, yes, this match bugged me extra because I had expectations for how it fit into this feud, which I actually liked the whole, the message of the feud, and it didn't, it didn't like, fit into that. But I think going to something you said, like, you had other complaints to this match that I agree with, and I think if you just came into this match without any context, like you didn't know the feud or anything, if you just watched this as like a match with nothing before or after, you'd be disappointed. Because just, it just doesn't ever quite get into that last gear. There is some cool stuff in it. Uh, I thought Danielson's selling was pretty amazing. There's the big turning point in the match where the Briscoes cheat and then they hit the uh, Doomsday device to Danielson, and then that's what 
lets him sell for minutes and minutes and minutes. Danielson sells it. Like, watch how he leans on the ropes and stuff. He sells it like he's in a movie where, if you've ever seen a movie or a cartoon where they do the old gag where a guy gets hit so hard, like, his soul leaves his body and it's just <laughs> watching his body. Like, I was literally imagining, like, Brian Danielson, like, hovering over his body because his selling was just like he got the soul knocked out of him with that doomsday device. It was so good. But in a way, that's partly made it more infuriating because I was like, I kept getting these little reminders during the match of, oh, you're all so talented, you know? Like, this match should be better than this. And, like, you're showing me that you're more talented. But for some reason, this match just isn't... The match isn't as good as you four guys are, which is such a weird, frustrating thing sometimes. Yeah, but, you know, it's not so unusual either, right? Um, If every match was great, then the great matches wouldn't be as great. Um, But, yes, I totally agree with you on that part, on that point that you're making. But just on the basic work, it's not a bad match. No, it's it, it's not. It, it's not what maybe you hope when you if you see this on on paper, you're gonna go, "Holy crap!" The Briscoes and Danielson and Joe, and they go almost 25 minutes, and it's not gonna be what you're hoping. But it's not a terrible match. It's it, it's not. But it is boring, and like <laughs> boring is bad for wrestling matches. And um. There was one other weird spot I, I didn't like, which, again, maybe I'm nitpicking, but there's just one spot I didn't like where um, I think Joe gets the choke on one of the Briscoes, and the other Briscoe comes in and just stomps on Joe and breaks it up. And so Joe's move is to go and tag Danielson in immediately, and Danielson's first move is to put that Briscoe in the cattle mutilation, and it's like, you know what's going to happen the other Briscoe is going to come in and kick you and break it up. And he does it immediately. Like it just seemed like strangely kind of that. And the Danielson whipping up Briscoe into the Briscoe's own corner spot. We're both kind of like strangely dumb spots from a very smart wrestler. Maybe we have found the one thing that Danielson at this point in his career was not good at tag team wrestling. Yeah. I'm serious. Well, I know Danielson has always said on some shoot interview like a year or two around this time, he was like, he always liked, like, the fewer people in a match, the better, because the more people in a match, the more ideas you have to, like, you have to take ideas from more people. Hmm. So I, I could see him being of the mindset of, I prefer, like, I, he probably didn't prefer tag matches, you know, at least at this point in his life, because I think his mindset, again, was just, I'd rather deal with my ideas and someone else's ideas than having to like work in four people's ideas or three people's ideas in a three-way. Yeah, and if you think about it, it was a while before he was ever really in a particularly good tag team match. Yeah, um, so he had been in, he was in some like you know later on, but like it was a while. Yeah, and it definitely is a different art form. So yeah, you we might have stumbled onto something here where maybe Brian Danielson was secret like that is his secret early career kryptonite was. Maybe he wasn't a great tag wrestler. I don't know. I'm sure someone's going to come up now with an example of like a great match he had somewhere, tag match at the yeah. era. But right. they're not popping in my head. Like again, he didn't shit the bed on them, but they're not. I, I, I nothing's really coming to mind. So I'm just trying to see here. Um, let me just see if there's any other notes. Uh, Chris Nelson makes a strategery reference to remind us that this was 2004. Although, although, although theoretically that skit was in 2000, so he's already out of date here. But. <laughs> well, he gets even more out of date. Um, I wonder if it was this match. I think it was a different, the upcoming match, but uh, let me just... Also, this was the match where I noticed that everyone tonight was using cravats. Slim J did, Danielson did, Mark Briscoe did, Nigel might have, I forget. But they weren't calling them that, right? They didn't give the name yet. 
like three quarter Nelson, they would call them. Yeah. But this was around the area where I think some of the wrestlers, I forget who, started getting the tapes of the old world of sport. And there was like a year period where like one third of wrestlers on the U.S. Indies were doing cravats. Oh yeah, well like, Chris, Chris here, Chris Hero made it his like, his shtick for years. And Hero actually might have been the guy who like really brought that in, or yeah. one of the guys, but. Yeah, it was almost like the 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 whole equivalent of the Shining Wizard for a time, and I feel like we've we've approached that now because I there was at least three or four guys on the show using them, and other than that, yeah. So another disappointing but not terrible match. After the match, uh, Danielson sells forever. Everyone shakes hands, although Joe is clearly pissed off that he lost. So furthering that. And that brings us to the main event, a six-man tag team match. The prophecy of B.J. Whitmer, Christopher Daniels, and Dan Moth, escorted to the ring by Allison Danger, defeat... No, they actually didn't defeat. They go to a draw, a no-contest, with the Second City Saints of a steel CM Punk and Cole Cabana with Tracy Brooks. They go to that no-contest in 28 minutes, 35 seconds, when Ref Hansen made the call after original ref Paul Turner got clocked accidentally by a chair, swinging B.J. Whitmer. So, this was a good match. I, um... I thought they did well in the sense of other than one face in peril sequence for Dan Moth, there was lots of tagging in and out, so you were always getting fresh matchups. And it's not like I didn't like the face in peril sequence, but I'm just saying this match for the most part was just like you were always getting fresh matchups. It never went too crazy, so it wasn't amazing, but it always kept like a nice medium pace. But I guess that's kind of like the theme of the show. It did not live up to expectations. It did not feel like to me like this amazing, heated like the like he, feud of the year. We're gonna kill each other match. It also didn't feel like the best match in Ring of Honor history. Which again, let me see if I can find the exact quote that um, Mike Johnson reported at the time. I'm trying to see if I can find it here. Um. Ring of Honor management is buzzing about their Wilmington, Ohio event from this past weekend. Several in the promotion have told me that they felt the six-man main event may have been the best match in the history of the promotion. Um, Matt, I don't know what you... I want to know now what you think of this match. I'm, I'm willing to bet $20 right now you do not think it was the best match in the history of the promotion. Yeah, in the context of that hype, it's definitely disappointing. But I didn't know that hype. So to me, this match wasn't disappointing. I actually thought it was better than I expected just because I didn't have a strong recollection of the match um, and, you know, didn't really hear the hype. And this show is not one of the most talked about shows in ROH history. You know, I knew the big spot at the end, but I, I thought it was very good. I thought it. I thought it was the match of the night pretty easily. I thought it was to me. It was clearly better than the uh, Homicide versus Styles match. That's why I kind of said it wasn't. The, that wasn't going to be the match of the night. Um, but I thought they did a really good job. Like you know, there was a long match. Um, I liked some of the particularities they did. I liked that you know, like I was wondering when the match started who was going to be the heels and the faces, and the crowd clearly had picked the prophecy. But they did other stuff to make sure that was true. Like Punk was jawing with the crowd. He attacked Daniels on the apron. But I liked like some of the stuff they did. Were like at the beginning of the um, of the match, Punk and Daniels had a stare down, and they literally drew battle lines with their feet <laughs> in the ring. Um, yeah. I, I like that. I, I would like it if um, if on every show they somehow made the uh, titular line literal. Like they, um, <laughs> like if bitter friends, stiffer enemies, 
I don't know, they like, um, I don't know, what's a bitter food? Um, they put um, limes or something. Yeah, they put they they put they covered themselves in limes when they were hanging out with their friends, and then when they were uh, when they were around their enemies, they like just wouldn't move at all. Um, I don't know what I'm talking. The about. last stand is nothing but last standing matches. Yeah, the la- or, yeah, or just like yeah, at the beginning of the show, there's like a bunch of like music stands, like where they pull cheap music, and a bunch of guys at the beginning they take them all away, but they leave one. And- <laughs> Um, boy, we could do this forever. I think we're going to have a special episode where we just uh, in, enjoy a f- fun pun-like scenarios with the titles of shows. Um, but in the meantime... Joe vs. Punk 2 is Joe vs. Punk having a rematch. Oh, wait, they did that. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm not good at this game. Um, so, um, but in the meantime, I'll review this match. Um <laughs> Yeah, but they do. They do some cool triple team stuff at one point. Like Cabana and um, and Punk have Moff and all like a hold and and Steel dro- drop kicks him in the face. Like after like a running start, I like that. I actually enjoyed Moff's face in peril sequence a lot. He doesn't really get to play the face in peril that often, and he's um, you know he's blading after going headfirst into the post, not hard way like McGinnis did. Um, so he actually blades. And I thought he did a good job. You know, we don't really get to see him in, as face in peril that often, right? He's usually, you know, mostly a heel, I guess. But and here... Had, even the hit squad, like, he certainly was never playing face in peril as the hit squad in Ring of Honor. Yeah, I, I agree. But he did a good job. His selling was good. Um, he... Uh, he blocked the Shining Wizard and hit a big clothesline, and that got the crowd really into him hot-tagging Daniels. And Daniels, you know, was, did a good job as a house of fire. He's taken out all three Saints. Uh, hits, um, And then they kind of go to a little bit of a, a dive sequence on the outside. Um, Cabana hits uh, an Acai Moonsault onto Whitmer. Moff ducked a clothesline by Steele and hit a tope onto Punk, which I thought was really cool. Steele hit a tope onto Whitmer. Punk springboard dove onto Whitmer and Moff, and Daniels hit the Arabian press onto the Saints. So everyone dove except for Whitmer, um, but that's fine. Um, and the crowd was really cheering for Daniels uh, when he take, when he took out Cabana. Um, it's funny because last time in Ohio, the prophecy were like Uber heels, right? So that's what made mm-hmm. me think that there was a promo that must have turned them into faces here because they were clearly like really rooting for them. Um, so I like that a lot. Um, I thought it was, um, I, you know, I thought it was kind of um, a bummer when they called the uh, when they called the match out. Oh, but one thing I missed: there was a really awesome uh, near fall when Daniels hit the best moonsault ever. Like it was like two and like nine tenths. It was a really good near fall. Um, and was this the first or one of the first times in Ring of Honor he actually did like he called it the best moonsault ever where he you know he's saying it as he does the jumps? Yeah, I, I remember it for either being on uh, the conclusion or the war or a war of the wire that they actually called that on commentary. But I think this might have been the first time that he yelled it out. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it was disappointing when there was a no contest. But I actually like thought that the post match brawl was really good. The one big complaint that I have is where Gabe did his thing of like the announcers were bailing because it was too intense. Because <laughs> um, as I mentioned on honorable mention, like whenever they do that, it's like you can't even see the announcer. So like, where are they supposed to be sitting? It just seems corny. But there was also a lot of stuff that happened here that you wanted announcers for. Um, most notably, Lucy appearing. And um, low and really okay. So 
She comes back after all this time. She was taken out. And her big move is that she hits a low blow on Whitmer and then just kind of stands on the side awkwardly. Um, Which is, I don't know. Uh, and she's wearing a hat covering her face. So, like, did the crowd even know that it was her? When she takes it off, you there's, like, a pop from, like, maybe one-eighth of the crowd. Like, yeah. there's a few people where it's a big deal, and the rest of them either don't know or don't care. Yeah. It was, it was like, not good. And at least you, if you had announcers, they could have at least sold the storyline a little bit. Like, obviously, we get it. But not everybody was watching that closely. Um, the another complaint I would have is there were a lot of uncomfortable chair shots to the head, like just a lot of them. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, uh, I, I I once they finally started doing the bit where they were taking out the prophecy members, I thought it was like they did a really good job of telling that story uh, in terms of uh, with like you know their moves and intensity. Like they took out Moff with the guardrail. And Daniels is fighting off Cabana, but Punk hit the Shining Wizard, and Steel hit a, wi- a Widow's Peak, and that's when they lift. So, so they set up the table. Cabana and Steel lift Daniels into the Pepsi Plunge position, and so like basically Daniels is like they have his legs hanging straight out, and Punk does the Pepsi Plunge from that position, and Daniels really takes a good a good bump, like going head through first through the table, and the crowd the crowd definitely goes nuts for that, and the Saints are like maniacally laughing, and Lucy is celebrating with them, and that's when the uh, the ring announcer tells tells everyone to leave, like he's like we need to attend to Daniels, leave. And Punk yells into the crowd, I own you, Daniels. I can't be stopped. <laughs> like a good supervillain. I I like this. I, I thought it was very good. I, I definitely think if the hype... like the Now that I know the hype that you're talking about, yeah, it's ridiculous. Like, really ridiculous. But <laughs> I thought this was... You know, for such a long segment, it didn't drag like the like the tag title match did. The crowd was, was definitely into it, which, you know, that's what you want. Um, I thought this was really good. I thought it a match worth seeing. That's my opinion. I thought this was a good match. I might put it as the best match of the night also, but I wouldn't maybe... I guess the difference was you said you said it's like a no-brainer that it's better than AJ Homicide. For me, I actually have to sit down and think about it, so I'm not... I don't have as much of a distance between the two matches. It was good, but I just feel like for a heavy... For a main event, for a big feud opening match... And for that hype, but again, that hype came after the match, not before it. So, but it was disappointing. But it was good. The other thing I noticed though that was a bit weird. Well, not weird. Well, it was. Uh, we've we've talked for a few shows now about how both sides could be the heel, and it's really confusing and all this stuff. And it was amazing just how over Daniels was. Like, he might have been the most over guy on the show. And he's. it was really interesting, interesting that the prophecy decided, like, the whole match, they don't do any healing. And they're not necessarily being, like, the ultra-raw-raw babyfaces, but they're not doing any healing. The Second City Saints are doing all the healing. And what was really interesting was... Punk plays like the chicken shit heel. Like early on, he has a chance to go one-on-one with Daniels to start the match, and he tags out. And he does that whole classic heel thing where he picks his spots, and he only wants to really wrestle Daniels when Daniels is already hurt. And the thing that reminded me of was when we were covering the Raven feud, I found that shoot interview Punk did where he said a problem he had with the Raven feud was Raven wanted Punk to play the chicken shit heel, and Punk's idea was, 
I hate you just as much as you hate me. So I'm not going to be, I shouldn't be a chicken shit because I should want my revenge. And apparently Raven won that argument. And I'm just, I was just thinking, well, if punk thought that for that feud, like this feud, isn't punk the guy who's like his good friend got mysteriously like attacked and driven out of the promotion. Like, Shouldn't he be desperate for revenge? He spent show after show investigating. Shouldn't he just be so desperate to uh, attack Daniels? But instead, he plays the very typical, I'm scared. I'm not even scared, but just, I'm not an eager to get into a fight with you. I'm going to pick my spots. I'm the heel. And it worked for the reactions in this match. But again, for the feud, it kind of feels a little bit out of character. And it, that goes to the same thing with the Lucy thing, which was, I realize. Lucy had been released from uh, her developmental deal with WWE so she could come back for this. And it, there is a nice symmetry where the whole, she got attacked at the last Ohio show. So there's like a nice little coming full circle moment. But her doing that, getting revenge, almost feels like that should be the spot at the end of the feud, not at the technical start of the feud. Like, right. Parby was like, okay, feud's over now. She got her revenge. Like, at the end of this match, the prophecy's completely destroyed, and Lucy got her revenge, and it's clearly okay. Like, kind of feels like the end of the feud, but obviously it isn't, and obviously um, the prophecy now have a reason to get revenge, but it was a little bit, it just felt a little bit weird. But uh, the other note, I, Matt, this is the most important part, though. <laughs> um, Chris Nelson on commentary says at one point, and this might be more unexpected to me than Nigel McGuinness is uh, doing the, the big head bash spot. Chris Nelson says at one point, Dan Moth has to be seeing stars right now, and I ain't talking Bette Midler. <laughs> I did not expect to hear a Bette Midler reference in 2004 on a Ring of Honor show. Like, is that the most, like, best referencing? Like, he's like, hey, this is just like when I saw Beaches, you know, the Divine Mess M. Like, what? Like, like, I I kept starting, I kept looking afterwards, like, I was like, is there some Bette Midler thing in the news in 2004 that I'm missing? No, there wasn't. But can I tell you something funny? So, I used to do um, pub trivia a lot, you know, pretty regularly. And one time we went, and there was a round all about Bette Midler. And, like, I knew all of the answers. Like, I just did great. And I was just like, at the end, I was just like, wow, I know a lot about Bette Midler. I did not realize that. Like, we cr- we won that night. And it was because I crushed it on that Bette Midler round. <laughs> that has to be the... <laughs> yeah, it is really weird, because it's like... I, 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 because again, I reread that that sentence. He says, "Moth has to be seeing stars right now," and I ain't talking Bed Midler. <laughs> so the, the, that phrase, you didn't need Bed Midler. You, the whole point of that phrase of that saying should just be whoever you think is a huge star. And the first star that came to Chris Nelson's mind in two thousand and four was Bette Midler. Well, <laughs> at least he didn't say Barbara Streisand, because, you know, she's clearly cancelled now, as they say, Ooh, as the kids okay. say these days. Yeah. Oh. And, uh, the only other spot I think I, uh, failed to mention was there was that big spot when Moff was getting his butt kicked, where he takes an A-Steel flying elbow drop, a Colt Cabana frog splash, and a CM Punk flying leg drop, all in a row, and then he kicks out at one, and hulks up, basically. Like, that was... Usually, you don't see those kind of spots in Ring of Honor matches in this I, era. I kind of, I kind of liked it. <laughs> I, 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 actually, I didn't mind it, but I was also like, "Wow!" Like, I did not expect to see that in this match. Yeah. And 
it was weird because between how over Christopher Daniels was and how the whole match is kind of centered around him and Moff doing a good job with the face and peril sequence and those kind of moments, I felt like BJ Whitmer, who this is his first official match as part of the prophecy, I felt like he was kind of an afterthought. Like he was just there. Definitely, when, definitely was, yeah. Yeah. He's the only guy who didn't do a dive also, like I said. Yeah, so... Yeah, like Matt said afterwards, that's where the real part of this match really goes on. They brawl for minutes and minutes afterwards, and then Lucy gets her revenge. The Eventually, it's down to Daniels versus all three members of the Saints. They Pepsi plunge him through a table, and this was supposed to be a big angle to write off Daniels for just a couple shows, a couple months, till at our best. And that was supposed to be because uh, Daniels was going to Japan to do the Curry Man gimmick for a while. So he was going to miss some shows anyway, so why not add some juice to the feud? And obviously the Feinstein scandal happens, and this ends up being the last we see of Christopher Daniels for quite a long time, actually. So it turns out to be a much more effective angle than uh, than they originally planned. Um we did not. We did not mention the man on woman violence on this show, but I know what I know what happened. No, it did. Let me look. Yes. I have it in my notes. Yes. Thank God, because it continues. Um, Punk late in the match, Tracy and Danger was got, got in the ring and the fight, and they fought around a bit. Punk pulled Danger off Brooks with a chokehold, so that's man on vi- woman violence. Second, second show in a row that he literally choked her. Also. Yeah, and then but then the big one comes later because in the aftermatch brawl, which again goes about five minutes, um, Punk chunks chucks ch- doesn't chunk him chucks Ref Hansen hard into a ring barrier. Uh, Gabe says that thing about how you know Gabe is the world the Ring of Honor commentary team is the most scared commentary team as you mentioned in wrestling because anytime something comes quote unquote near them they run away. Uh, Michael Cole is braver than them apparently, but. Um, So, Brooks and Danger brawl in the ring. Brooks takes off her shirt to choke Danger with it, which gets a cheap wolf whistle from the crowd, leading to BJ Whitmer coming to the ring and hitting her with the frigging Exploder 98. So, yeah, couldn't get clear man-on-woman violence there. Nope. Um, Oh, yeah, Colton Punk also did a doomsday blockbuster to Whitmer during that brawl, which was pretty wild. Um, Anyway, after all of this... We get to the post-match, post-brawl fallout, which is Allison Danger and a bunch of mid-cutters and students check in on Daniels as the ring announcement is made that the show is over. The fans should all head to their cars. Daniels lays absolutely motionless, selling like he's dead. And we get extended footage of people trying to tend to him to sell the angle. I thought they did a good job of selling the injury, particularly Danger. But I think they're going to overkill it in the next couple segments. But first... Um, one more thing to finish this match before we get into the final couple segments. Christopher Daniels talked about this match in a shoot interview and this angle. He remembers this angle and the match is both turning out really well. He says it has a hot, it had a hot crowd that stuck with them the whole time. I will say the crowd didn't come off as super hot for a lot of this match, but Daniels remembers it as super hot. Maybe it was mic'd badly. I mean, they, they, were, they were definitely not dead for it at all. They weren't dead, but he, he rumors as being really hot. Um, Daniel says, Punk, Command, and Ace are all so easy to work with. He really just can't put over how, how easy they are to wrestle. And as we established, by the way, they don't mic crowds at all in, our, in early ROH. Yeah. 
And the interesting thing for me from this interview bit was Daniel says that that night after the match, he and Punk were so excited that they were brainstorming ideas for their feud back and forth. They were, and they were just going, we could do this. And yeah, you could do this. And I guess Joe was like elsewhere in the locker room. And he was saying, and Joe like made a joke to him was like, Hey, you two, you like booking the whole promotion around you two now. And (laughs) just like, they were like, ah, stop it, Joe. And then, I thought Daniels had an interesting little perspective on this. He was really looking forward to feuding with Punk because he said it would force him, Daniels, to raise his promos to Punk's level, which he didn't think they were on. And it would also allow him, he said, to do something a bit more personal than the standard, Grr, I'm going to get you next week at the Armory promos he had been doing. Mm. So it was interesting that, that Daniels apparently was really looking to try and do something that was more personal and... Yeah. Although I don't know that his promos were ever "Gur, I'm going to get you next week at the Armory." But yeah, I mean that was his example. But like, but I can see his point where he talked about like he was really inspired by watching the Punk Raven feud, which had like a personal element. It wasn't just about you hit me at this show, so I'm going to hit you at this show. You know, it had a a deeper part element to it. Yeah. But. Next, we get a few more little segments cut to a very young Alex Shelley doing a backstage promo. Shelley says there's no gimmick needed here and introduces himself as the next. Wink, wink. And he debuts talent on loan from God as his Which catchphrase. Which is a Rush Limbaugh saying, isn't it? Is it? Ay. I believe, like, I don't, I'm not a Rush Limbaugh I, fan. but I, I believe I, it. I, I believe talent on loan from God is a Rush Limbaugh saying. I might be wrong. He's, I mean, he used it a lot later on, like in, that, in 2004. He definitely used it at other times. And Shelley says 2004 is going to be his year. We cut back to the ring as fans are leaving. Daniels is still motionless. And then we cut back again to a Special K backstage. They're freaking out over Abyss being all big and Abyssy and the girls being all women. And then we cut again back to the ring where the house lights are now on. Daniels is still selling. And I, at this point, like the cuts, like when you cut something back away and to something over and over again, that creates the illusion that something like is taking more time than it is. And it started at this point for me getting comical. Like it was like, okay guys, like either I wish they had not made it feel so long or they had gone full into the comedy and just had a graphic that said, like, two weeks later <laughs> when they cut back to Daniels. Or even, like, had, like, a wedding in the building and Daniels is still lying motionless in the middle of the building and they're just, like, trying to ignore him as, like, wedding people do the chicken dance and stuff. It's but, funny that they, like, tried to make it realistic, but they still had him rolled out, like, on a table instead of just, like, on a stretcher. And, and on top of that, like... They're acting like it's the most deadly serious thing in the world, which, again, it's good to sell angles like that. But they're also taking so long and so incompetent that it feels like if Daniel, if someone actually did get hurt in a Ring of Honor show and they reacted this way, like, they would die of old age before they got to the hospital. (laughs) Like, and there's also a point where, like, they're like, don't move his head, don't move his head. And then eventually they're putting him on the on this door or whatever, instead, as you said, instead of a stretcher. And the guy, like, watch watch this guy who grabs Daniels. He grabs his head and twists it like, <laughs> in a way you don't want to do. Even and, to a healthy person, you don't want to do yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, it kind of got ridiculous, especially because in Ring of Honor, I realized it was him, this spot, this Pepsi punch to the table was... You're taking a finisher through a table, so you should sell it big. But at some point, they sold it so big, it was like, I've seen 20 moves in Ring of Honor that were more 
scary than this move, at least. True, true. Although, I mean, it's a pretty big spot. Like, it's a guy's finisher, you know, like, through a table. Yes, but it's also mostly a guy taking a bump on his stomach through a table. Like, they really protected him, I felt like. Which, not that that's a good thing. That's definitely a good thing, but... It's weird, like, you have to sell it because it's going to take him out for a few shows as a big deal, but they were starting at some point to cross the line a little bit, I yes, felt like. Yes, I agree. The, like, the, the length was long, although, you know, it's like guys get pinned after the people's elbow, you know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. 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 But, oh, we cut to the Second City Saints backstage. Punk says Daniels became a casualty in war tonight. Punk says his team sacrificed tonight. Colt has two damaged shoulders, and they don't know how bad it is, but they know it's bad. Tracy Brooks took the Explorer 98, and Ace Steel, he gets to Ace Steel, and it's basically like, well, Ace did some stuff. <laughs> like, he, like, he says something, but it's nothing as impressive as shoulder injuries or girl taking in the Explorer 98. And uh, Ace was also here. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, Punk says there's no one he's more proud of tonight, though, than his Lucy, who came back tonight to the scene of the crime to get her revenge. Punk says whatever hospital Daniels is watching this in, he hopes he sees it and thinks of the Saints. And I just wrote, so Punk thinks Daniels is still going to be the hospital in like four months when this comes out on DVD? It's seven years when it's finally released. (laughs) I hope in 2006 when you watch this and you're in the hospital still. But, uh... Punk then seemingly misspeaks and calls his group the Second City Staints. It's like he accidentally said stains, and then he tried to correct it by saying by making sure he added the ain'ts at the end. So he said Second City Staints, and then he says they're going after all the belts. So typical punk promo. Back to Daniels. He's in the ring again. Um, yeah, this is where they did the head twisting bit, and then finally we cut to end the show. Dan Moff is somewhere backstage. He says BJ Whitmer dropped the ball tonight. He blames the loss on him or the no contest on the attack on him. So if it wasn't for that, they'd be having a victory party right now. Moff says Daniels is off to the hospital. And then he says that the Saints are going to get an all out war. Moff guarantees you're going to see a different prophecy from now on. And uh, he was right there. Maybe not how he knew he was going to be right, but yes, the prophecy does change. It was different. Yes. That is the battle lines are drawn. When you when you mentioned Abyss at the end, it just made me think. Do you remember that the Impact Zone audience created a song for Abyss? Oh yeah, it was like I, oh, Abyss. oh Abyss. Oh yeah, yeah. The Impact Zone loved those because they did like the Bentley bounce and stuff. <laughs> yeah, they they loved making improbable songs for improbable wrestlers. Or, or songs or dances. One wrestler you wouldn't think would have a song, Abyss. One wrestler you definitely wouldn't think have a dan- would have a dance, Matt Bentley. <laughs> so, Matt, that's the first show of 2004. As we said early, at the start of the show, still kind of in a transition period from 2003 to what people remember 2004 as. What did you think about the show? I, I bet you're not going to agree with the hype that this is an early show of the year contender level wrestling event. Right, I wouldn't, but like you know, like so, like the impression that I was going in with was that this is one of those shows in that weird period between the to end of two thousand three and when like the real two thousand and four ROH came into mm-hmm. existence. So it's like a show that doesn't really get talked about at all at this point. 
So with the, under that, you know, under those circumstances, I actually found the show surprisingly entertaining. I yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Like you know, so some matches were disappointing, but no matches were bad. Some matches were surprisingly good. I thought the main event, you know, was excellent, and it took up a lot of time, so it was a large percent of the DVD. Um, I thought the first hour had some surprisingly good stuff. You know, certainly more noteworthy than I expected with some of that Nigel McGuinness stuff. Um, so I give it a solid thumbs up. I don't think it's like anything super special, but a thoroughly entertaining event, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's such a weird show because all the big matches in my mind, like I thought they were all the top three matches in terms of just ex- name value. I thought all disappointed to different degrees but yet at the same time like you said nothing was bad there was quite a few like fun little decent undercard things and it was like pretty easy to watch as a show yes so it's it, it's weird because gabe you know like every wrestling promoter you have to hype things and you oversell things a little bit but it's really rare in this period for Gabe to oversell a show this much, to act like it's one of the best shows they've ever done, and the main event's one of the best matches they've ever done. And I think that really probably did it a disservice at the time. They probably didn't sell a ton of copies of this show, but like I feel like if you came in, like I think we illustrated with the show, like you saying how you didn't have those expectations and really enjoyed it, I, I think if you come into this show with free of the, of, of the, of the hype, it's like a really decent, like pleasant way to watch three hours of wrestling. It's a good show, I think. Like, just like yeah. it's a solidly good show, even with its disappointments. But yeah, it just makes me scratch my head why you would sell it as just like, man, this is an amazing show. This is going to be in contention for one of the best shows of the year at the end of the year. Like, it, it that's it's burdening it with something that it just doesn't deserve. Like it it. it it doesn't deserve that kind of expectation on it. Right. I, I would say I enjoyed it a lot more than many of the late year 2003 shows, though. Like, obviously, it wasn't as good as Final Battle. But probably of the shows that came before it, like, I probably liked it more than most of them. Yeah. So, yeah, an interesting show, I, I felt like. Like, an interesting the, – all the things that happened on it, like – this is definitely the kind of B show I like reviewing because there's all sorts of little things you don't remember, and it's interesting to like. It's not something that hasn't. It's not a show that's been picked to death, you yeah. know, by a hundred different minds. So, and also it's it's a weird you know moment in time because a lot of the stuff that they're building here get dropped, um, you know, once the big change happens. Yeah, that, that's the other big thing is just how much things are going to change or things that they're building up that don't really turn out great. Like- once, once ROH goes through puberty, and I'm, <laughs> you know, that's a very problematic joke that I'm making. <laughs> yeah, once people turn around the age of, say, I don't know, 14. But, uh, but you know, you anyway, <laughs> anyway uh, that will wrap up the show. If you want to contact us for any reason, uh, through the years at gmail.com is the email, T-H-R-O-H. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Mayor MGF for Matt at Trevor Dame for me. Uh, we post uh, we have little threads on the plug forums for the show at Voices of Wrestling and Pro Wrestling Only, our home base and Figure Four uh, online. And uh, yeah, that'll bring it that we're starting 2004, and our next episode will be show two of 2004, and that'll be the last stand in a. Actually, the last stand in Baltimore for a while, so it is kind of fitting. And it will be Joe's last title challenge, as he it will be Samoa Joe with um, Jerry Lynn challenging the Briscoes, and CM Punk versus Homicide for the second time in Ring of Honor. 
Looking forward to it. And looking forward to hopefully having all our listeners back for that one. Thank you for waiting a little longer for this episode and looking forward to the year. So goodbye, everybody. See you soon, deep vein thrombozos. Woo.